On this episode of the Nostalgic Millennial Podcast, we're going back to the 2000s to cover Napoleon Dynamite and all its memorable quotes. Paul, I reckon you know a lot about cyberspace. You ever come across anything like time travel? Well, uh, uh, kind of, Matt. We did go back in time on our Secret of the Ninja episode. Remember how upset you were about that one sword decision? It was the worst day of my life. What do you think? I mean, I'm not sure it was that bad. I, I think maybe you're taking that a little bit too seriously, man. Well, uh, you know, I guess you could say uh, things are getting pretty serious. For what it's worth, I did feel you made the right choice. It's just that the book didn't reward you. That's all. I don't even have any good skills. You know, like nunchuck skills, bow hunting skills, computer hacking skills. Listeners only like hosts with great skills. Well, then they're in for a treat with this one. Yes. Welcome to the Nostalgic Millennial Podcast, where we will nerd out over the shows, movies, books, games, and more that made us who we are today. Prepare yourself for a return to the 1990s on the Nostalgic Millennial Podcast. This episode is dedicated to our newest patron, Daniel. We can't thank you enough for your support. You've officially solidified yourself in our podcast's lore. Thank you so much for helping our nostalgic community to live long and prosper. Welcome back, everyone, for our Napoleon Dynamite episode. This is one that I have been waiting for probably since we started the podcast. Napoleon Dynamite is my favorite comedy ever, and obviously you could debate different types of comedies, different genres of them, but... If I had to pick one, it's going to be Napoleon Dynamite. It's flippin' sweet, you might say. And typically, when I think of this movie, it takes me right back to high school. That's when I first saw the movie. And I remember watching it with a group of friends. And it was 11th grade. Uh, we had we were watching it on video, not in the theater, over at one of my friend's houses. And so not only is the movie all about high school, but I experienced it in high school and so there's just layers of nostalgia on top of each other. And I am really excited to get into this one. Paul, where do you stand with Napoleon Dynamite? Well, I had seen it before this recording, and it must have been for me in college. I was kind of going through a phase during summers, buying old DVDs. As I was trying to go through all the IMDb top 250s. And basically, that's kind of what I did most of the summer when I wasn't working, is just kind of watch movies. So this is where Napoleon Dynamite, would pop up in my viewing. And I just remember in high school, it was big because of all the memes, the gifts, the quotes, everyone was doing it. And so it kind of got that type of luster of this is such a good movie that everyone's talking about where I want to be countercultural and not really watch it because it was so popular, the dance, everything about it. But I did do it because I was like, there's so much hype around this. I got to watch it. And I remember enjoying it pretty well. That's about all I remember from it. And so obviously going to do this, you know, we approach it from a narrative standpoint and obviously we want to bring deeper meaning. I was a little nervous about how to bring deeper meaning to it because I just remember it just being a bunch of ridiculous quotes in succession. And I got to say, Matt, it's probably the hardest, this is the hardest narration that I've ever had to do. And quite frankly, it took me a few days just even understanding really how to approach the movie, try to find 
I'm very analytical with trying to watch these movies and try to understand why something's funny or why something's good. This was a good movie. So I'm just trying to figure out why. And then it just clicked and I, it kind of made sense. I was like, Oh, here we go. But the reason this was so hard is it doesn't have a plot per se, right? It's like in most standard movies, you have character development, with these characters to kind of show their motivations for an overarching plot. So like taking mummy, for example, you obviously have Brendan Fraser, Rick O'Connell here. He's the brave guy. So when things go and get rough, he's going to be standing up and you're like, Oh, I remember him being brave. That makes sense. Benny's the coward. So when he runs from danger, you're like, Oh, that makes sense. Evie's the smart one. So when she gets something right and solves a problem, you're like, Oh, that makes sense here. The character development is, is the story. I mean, there is no like, hierarching thing that they're looking to tie in the character development. The character development is the reason for the plot. So it's very different from something that I would typically watch. And the scenes are done in such a way that it's, they're very short and dialogue driven. And so you're looking at only less than 30 seconds sometimes for some of these scenes with just words. And then they just cut from that to the next. And so it's really hard writing a narration about that because typically I like to watch a longer scene and then summarize it with the important parts. But here, everything was just so short, but yet every one of these snapshots would make sense. I mean, they were written in a way where you needed to know that snapshot because it would build onto another link in the chain and so forth. And so it's it's a very quick scene quick cuts, but every single thing ends up making sense. And then at the end of the day, you get this really satisfying culmination of all these different character arcs. And I can't wait to talk about the end and hear your thoughts about it. Yeah, I think that, I mean, we'll get more into it, but the characters are in the movie. To me, this is sort of just a, a snapshot of these characters' lives and and the plot. There is a plot, like a loose plot in the sense of we have characters that are looking to go on dates or they're looking to make money or that are trying to reach some sort of goal. There are things like the dance and the election, which I think offers sort of a loose framework of a plot, but definitely nothing that's driven to some sort of higher purpose. Like we have to defeat the bad guy and save the world or something like that. So very, very different to like what we typically would watch. Like you were saying, I think that there's plenty to get into here, but we do have to, of course, start with our Back to the 2000s segment. So today we are headed back to June of 2004. Now, even this was difficult. Like you mentioned, the narration was very difficult. I wanted to write down every word that was spoken throughout the movie and couldn't do that. So this was also hard because the movie initially was released at the Sundance Film Festival, January 17th, 2004. I decided to do June for this segment because that was the theatrical release, June 11th. So probably it wasn't until June that the movie was even beginning to get into the public consciousness. And the whole point of this segment is to put yourself in the mindset of where you were at the time that this thing happened. So we're going back to June. 2004, and we're going to go through movies, music, video games, and books. For the movies, we have Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. We also have Shrek 2. We have The Day After Tomorrow, Dodgeball, and the Garfield movie. For music, we had a couple of Usher songs that were at the top of the charts, 
Burn and Confessions Part 2. For video games, we had The Legend of Zelda The Four Swords for GameCube, Dragon Ball Z Super Sonic Warriors for the Game Boy Advance, Spider-Man 2, and the Mega Man Anniversary Collection. And with books, there was The Da Vinci Code. Uh, This was not published in the month, but it was the top bestseller. Now, obviously, immediately jumping out, those movies are pretty good. Harry Potter, clearly Prison of Azkaban. Things start getting real in that series. Great movie. That'll be the next book that we cover. Dodgeball, hilarious comedy. That'd be another interesting one to try to narrate. Very different in a way from Napoleon Dynamite. A lot, Probably a lot more slapstick humor, whereas Napoleon Dynamite's more dry. It is really interesting to get into the different categories of humor. And I know we kind of went over it a little bit on some of our Patreon content, but it's really hard to kind of put all comedies into one category. But which category did you say you put Napoleon Dynamite into? So I looked this up to try to find out officially what is the category for Napoleon Dynamite. It was listed, and I think this makes sense, as an absurdist comedy. So you have lots of very random humor. It's really not predicated upon anything other than just those characters in that situation. It's just sort of organic to that group of people. To me, I don't know if if this would technically be classed this way. It kind of puts me in mind of a lot of the gags that you see in Scrubs where you just have lots of random things happening with quirky characters. I think that was kind of a thing at this time in the 2000s. And yeah, to me, that's a good description. Yeah, and I think Dodgeball's similar and then it has a bunch of random stuff, but it's definitely more slapstick in terms of how hardcore they go with some of the scenes. And yeah, it's so odd. Like You could even say something like Ghostbusters is a comedy in a way. And yet it's obviously got so much more tangible plot and elements. So that's a very interesting discussion to have in regards to what a com- what is a comedy movie. Yeah, I mean, there's so many ways you can take it. And I feel like with comedy, it's so, it's so broad as to you might love one type but hate another type. I mean, it might not click with everybody. So lots of subcategories, subgenres that we could get into here. But Napoleon, for me, is very much in that tradition. I I do see some connection with Dodgeball, perhaps. And then later on, like another film that John Heater, who plays Napoleon, starred in Blades of Glory with (laughs) Will Ferrell, which was a movie crew movie that we saw back in college. So, And I remember some split opinion on that. You know, some guys didn't get it. To me, I thought it was great. So I think that it's sort of an acquired taste or, or maybe... You just have to like that kind of humor. Yeah, definitely. And the point Dynamite's probably in that category. Even just looking at some of the reviews, it's like you're either going to love it or hate it. This might not be the movie for you, but you should check it out to at least see. And I agree with that assessment. Video game wise, you'd mentioned a Zelda game. Game Boy Advance didn't have one of those growing up. Didn't have that growing up. So I kind of missed out on some really cool games. Obviously, big Zelda guy. You know, the N64 episode, I talked a little bit about my experience with Majora's Mask. And... Breath of the Wild, I I own, still haven't beaten. So, unfortunately, you know, for me, Ocarina of Time, Majora's Mask is really my big Zelda experience. And then after that, it probably goes to like Smash Brothers, unfortunately. I just never got into a lot of the later releases, in part because I didn't have the systems, but in part just because they weren't my cup of tea. In the same way with Zelda, I love the early games, the original Nintendo game, A Link to the Past on SNES, and then the 64 games. 
And then, oh, and, and probably my favorite is Link's Awakening on uh, the regular Game Boy or Game Boy Pocket, which was then re-released for the Switch later on, remastered. But I have not played a lot of the more recent entries. And a lot of that comes down to not having Nintendo systems. I will say Game Boy Advance, I love that system. It was great. I had that as a kid. Um, the The graphical upgrade from the old Game Boy to that was just... It blew you away. And there were some epic games. Golden Sun in particular comes to mind. And Advance Wars. I mean, it's a really good system. Although I do recommend getting the SP version because it is backlit and a lot easier to see than the original. Well, oddly enough, man, if you recall, that's the one that you had given me when I was older. You actually did give me one because you felt <laughs> so bad. And you gave me Advance Wars and uh, Final Fantasy Tactics with it. So I, oh, yeah. I did yeah. later on, I did later on, like, I, I did get to experience the beauty of a, a Game Boy Advance courtesy of yourself. Well, what can I say? I'm a generous guy. So we're going to jump into our narration. And the narration is going to be a little difficult uh, because, again, I just want to quote everything. And as Paul mentioned, the scenes are very, very quick. We might be running some scenes together here, and then we'll, we'll stop at some point and discuss. It really just depends how much we have to say about particular scenes. Without any further ado, let's get into it. So we have John Heater playing Napoleon Dynamite. This was written by Jared Hess, and it seems like a lot of everything that happens in here comes from experiences of his when he was a child. I listened to the commentary track when I did this research, and so I picked up a lot of stuff from that. So I'm going to pepper in some of that insight from Napoleon himself and from Jared Hess uh, into some of what we discuss. And whenever you start up the movie, you go into this introduction with music and different objects being presented on the screen, and there's a very simple background. It changes for each object, so you see maybe a carpet or a tiled floor or whatever it is, and then an object presented that you can sort of take a closer look at. And it incorporates the actors and the writers and everybody's names into the different objects. So we start off with UFO abduction insurance card. It says, don't leave Earth without it. It has a picture of an alien on the front. And then it says, starring John Heater. We get a Preston High, Preston, Idaho, 2004 to 2005 marking on the card as well to show us when the movie's taking place. We also have a steak. We have a steak next. We get some nachos, a corn dog peanut butter sandwich, we get a foil ninja star, we get a library book with a card in it, it's called Bigfoot and Me, in case anyone was curious, the name of the book, we get some sort of lemon candy, Uh, we get a chapstick, sketch of a warrior, another sketch of a centaur, we get some toy cars and a protractor and pencils, and finally a hamburger. So all these objects, sort of quintessential high school and lunch type objects for the most part. We go into the first scene and we are out front of Napoleon's house. Now this is actually set in the writer's real hometown. So this is an actual place, not just Napoleon's house, but all 
of Preston, Idaho. So everything that you see in this movie is taking place in this real life town. Most of the extras in the film are just random people in the town. So it's pretty neat to sort of think of it like that. It's really like a real community that we're seeing on screen here. Napoleon's house is pretty simple. Looks like a ranch style house. It's brick on the outside and it's sort of got a sidewalk leading up to the road. There's a very flat type of landscape. And he's standing there with his sort of permed curly hair. He's got his glasses on. He's wearing a blue shirt that has wild stallions running across the front of it. And he's holding on to his trapper keeper and books to take the bus to school. He opens up his trapper keeper and kind of sighs as the bus approaches. And when the bus doors open, this sort of funky music starts to play. And he walks into the bus. There are kids of all ages. Most of them are small. He looks like the only high school-aged kid that's on the bus. He walks to the very back. He sits down. And this boy next to him asks, What are you going to do today, Napoleon? Whatever I feel like I want to do. He then opens the window. And he has to sort of move the little tabs, if you remember from being on the school bus, those weird little tabs you had to press in to lower the window. And he gets it down. He opens up the Trapper Keeper, and there is an action figure inside. Kind of looks like a pro wrestling figure. He has fishing line or some sort of rope attached to it, and it's sort of wrapped around the figure's waist. And he very sneakily kind of looks and then tosses it out the window, and he just holds on to the line and just, like, drags this action figure behind the bus as it just hits different, like, pebbles and ruts in the road. From that, we cut into the school. And we have here the first sign of Napoleon's major skills that he has. One of them is drawing. And he's sketching out a pegasus and unicorn-type creatures onto some sort of notepad. And there are kids who look really bored, just sitting around, And all of a sudden, we hear a teacher off-screen say, Your current event, Napoleon? So he gets up, and we see on the board it says, Book reports due next Wednesday. No late work will be accepted. And Napoleon now has to present his current event to the class. Last week, Japanese scientists placed explosive detonators at the bottom of Lake Loch Ness to blow Nessie out of the water. When he (laughs) says this, a girl laughs. And he pauses for a moment before continuing. But Scotland's local wizards cast a protective spell around Loch Ness and its residents and all those who seek for the peaceful existence of our underwater ally. From there, we cut over to the schoolyard and Napoleon is playing a game called Tetherball where you have to sort of knock a ball around a pole. And we just see him doing that until he's successful. He's playing by himself, though, worth noting. And he seems very excited as he finally gets it to go around the pool. Starting with that intro, it was really satisfying watching all those images. And the thing that stuck out to me was all the different food. I think maybe I was hungry at the time. And so the food here, some of it actually will be important for the story, but the food here that, I, that I'm going to note are tater tots with ketchup, burritos and rice, deviled eggs, ribeye steak, nachos with cheese and sour cream. I should say nacho cheese with sour cream. A meal of corn dog with mandarin oranges and peas, peanut butter sandwich and banana, hamburger and fries, 
And I guess my question, Matt, is where are you at here in terms of a school lunch or dinner? What of this would you pick of all these meals that we've seen? Excellent question. So uh, if I'm going back to high school before I was a vegetarian, I 100% would go for the hamburger first. That was an easy choice. Going beyond that, I think if I was drafting, let's say, a second and third pick, I'm probably going to grab the burrito and the nachos and have myself kind of like a little Taco Bell experience there at the school. What about you? Well, if we're talking high school, just outright meals, you know, I would basically get the same meal every time. It was just white bread with like bologna and mayonnaise, a Frito-Lay snack and drink. Sometimes I'd get a fruit snack as well. I thought this more perspective is like an adult, but I guess if I were in high school, I'd probably want the same thing. And I was kind of stuck between a steak and the nachos. Cause I feel like the only reason I don't get a steak is just because it costs too much money compared to what you get. And so kind of like what you did with the burritos, I'd probably want to like take the steak with the nachos. Cause I do love nachos. Uh, you get a nice crunch as well as a little bit of soggy, add some refried beans to that. And you're looking at a pretty good meal, steak, nachos, can't go wrong with that. And for whatever reason in restaurants, it's just cheaper. I have no idea why like nachos are just cheaper than everything else, but you can get a ton of meat on it and it's just good value. Oh, totally. Nachos are a great idea. If I actually go back to my real high school, we had sort of a food court situation and there were different stations that you could go to. And there was one that changed every day. There was one that was sort of like a a very basic Italian station that had like spaghetti. And then there was a, a Mexican station. Yeah, they had uh, nachos and tacos every day there. I frequented that Mexican part. And you could get the nachos. I would load them up. I mean, you could just dump as much as you wanted on there. Like they were very lax. So you'd put in like all this meat and cheese. It was like, oh, it was probably horribly, horribly unhealthy. But like the salt of the chips and like the meat and the cheese, it was fantastic. That was one of the things about my high school that I appreciated quite a lot. We had a Wendy's near us, so I would just go get Wendy's, and this was back in the day. <laughs> That's OP, man. You just could go to Wendy's? Wow. For well, Yeah, for, it was across the street, and for whatever reason, and I had a really strict private high school, they made that part of campus. So they let students go to the Wendy's, and I'd get like $5 a week in allowance. But back then in the 2000s, early 2000s, that's a lot of money, man. Like these, the JVCs were like twice the size they are now. And they had and, the and dollar were, items, yeah. you know, you, the dollar menu at Wendy's was, was just off the chain. I mean, it was fantastic. Yeah, I mean, two JVCs would, would fill me up then. So I, that was pretty elite having that. I was a big fan of the chili. I went for that quite a lot. Oh, I do that now for sure. Yeah. Good times. So yeah, let me ask you about this. The action figure out of the bus. <laughs> I mean, did you ever do anything like that? I mean, I remember, you know, when you're a kid, you get to a point sometimes where you do some kind of rough play with the toys, possibly. Napoleon here, you know, throwing it out the window. Did you ever try to drop figures like out of a window or off of a tree or like do anything like that? See, that's weird because I never even thought about it until you just asked me now, but I did actually, <laughs> and I'll never forget it. I had we, we had a van, it was a Plymouth Voyager, and the windows were like the ones you had to push out and then pull back in, and I had a Batman action figure that I was, was like messing around, and I was mortified because it dropped out of my hand. 
onto the road and it just, it's like game over. <laughs> I never even like I, but I would never think that that was actually a thing that would unite people that you would put your action figures out a window. I never went as hard as doing that, but yeah, yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> I, That's really great. <laughs> yeah. I, I definitely, I had, I, my bedroom was like in the second story of our house and underneath of it was just the yard so, like, if I was playing with action figures, sometimes I'd be playing, like, by the window, and then, like, I'd have one of them get knocked off or something, <laughs> they just fall down to the ground. And, like, nothing would happen to them, because they would just hit the grass, so, it was, yeah, it was pretty epic. Well, you say that, but I lost another action figure to a lawnmower, because it was in the grass, <laughs> just R.I.P., so something maybe got, maybe it did get thrown out the window, but I just remember seeing that, the body just all over the place, and just no. devastation. <laughs> Because we had limited toys back then. <laughs> yeah, very, very fun opening scene. Also, I have to shout out the Trapper Keeper. Trapper Keepers were so, like, they were so popular. I mean, I don't think you can even understand it today. But back then, I mean, that was a big deal for me. You went to school, like, if your mom would let you get a Trapper Keeper. Because they were a little expensive, like, compared to just getting, like, a plain old, you know, sleeve notebook type thing. And... I mean, you had the Velcro strap on there. It was pretty great. Yeah, binders were the big decoration piece for people. It's kind of like a status symbol, and you could decorate it however you wanted to. Seeing filler paper, you know, the writing paper you would use brought back a ton of memories, too, that you just wrote everything on. I haven't seen filler paper in forever. It's just the plain white stuff now, but oh, that brought back memories as well. Yeah, and later on in the movie, we will see people passing notes which doesn't happen anymore. I'll talk more about that later, but the just the paperlessness of, of the society. I was enjoying seeing some of that old equipment, you know, uh, sort of school supplies back in this movie. I did want to ask you if you actually rode a bus, because I never got, I never rode a bus, and I'm kind of glad I didn't, and my kids would never ride a bus either, but my parents would either, you know, we were about five minutes from my elementary school and so my dad would take me in the morning and we'd walk home. And then in high school, my parents would kind of split that up for the drive. But I never had a bus experience. Did you? And what was that oh, like? Definitely. Yeah. That, uh, yeah. It kind of blows my mind that you never had had it at all. Uh, I did not when I was younger. Uh, there was like a community local neighborhood elementary school that I went to that my dad would walk with me back and forth it was a walker. I'd walk there with him in the morning and then he'd be there waiting for me. And then we'd walk home together. When I got a little bit older, I'd walk on my own. But then around uh, middle school, I had no choice but to take the bus because it wasn't really walkable. I mean, I went to a public school system. The middle school I had to go to it was a little bit of a drive, so yeah, I started in middle school, continued on through high school, never had a car in high school, so I did it the whole way through senior year. The bus experience was, I mean, for me, it was like, it wasn't good or bad, it was a little bit annoying, depending on how the routes went, like if you got home sooner or later, it sort of depended how they chose to drive. I remember in high school, I got really, really lucky because they went to my street like as the second stop on the way home. So I was one of the last stops in the morning and one of the earliest to go back, which was pretty awesome. In middle school, I remember them going around like and making me one of the later routes. So I paid my dues in middle school, let's say. 
it could be okay. It really depended on if you had friends on the bus that you wanted to talk to or not. If you didn't, it was kind of boring, but I would just sit there and I don't know. I do remember like wrestling with those tabs on the window constantly. Like those things are so hard to get down. Like sometimes they'd go right down. Other times you're fighting with it, pinching yourself in there, trying to get it down. So when I saw him do that, that really kind of just brought back those memories. And in the commentary, John Heater said that uh, there was a woman, I don't know if it was a fan or who it was, but somebody told him that as soon as he pushes the little tabs on the bus window down, it brought her right back to school days and being on the bus. So I'm with her on that, whoever she is. Yeah, I feel because I, well, I did not ride a bus in school. I did ride buses for different trips and whatnot. And those things were death traps, man. It's like, I always, <laughs> I think I always pinched my, my hand on those things. Cause they just kind of like shoot out. And if your fingers even remotely close pinch guaranteed. 100%. So yeah, I don't know if those are still features on buses now, but back in, you know, the two thousands, the nineties, I think they all had them as far as I know. Yeah. Like what you said about kids having to wait. The buses get here so early around my house, they must have like 45 minute to an hour type travel. And these kids, especially in the winter, just sitting out there and then they have to sit on a bus for 40 minutes or whatever. Just, I always felt so bad for them, but obviously I understand. I mean, you have to do what you got to do, but I'm just glad I didn't have to. That said, during winter times, if my dad's car broke down, which it did pretty frequently because <laughs> he had this, oh, like, he, had a, he had a lemon needless to say, although I guess I can, a lemon. If I, can, uh, if I can connect it to a previous episode, it sounds like the old man in the Christmas story where he's has to fix the blown tire or the radiators <laughs> out, you know, or whatever it is. So kind of reminds me of that a little bit. He had a Colt and I don't even remember what kind of car it was other than it was just a Colt and, uh, you know, I talked a little bit about it with the Pop-Tarts on the seats, but yeah, that thing broke down all the time, especially during the winter. And we'd have to haul it in insane weather sometimes through the, through the snow, uh -huh. which, which isn't ideal either, but it is what it is. You got to do it. So our next scene, we head to the locker room. The boys in the locker room are sitting around. There's three guys on a bench and then Napoleon is sitting by himself on another bench and they're asking him some questions. This one guy in particular whose name is Don, is sitting there in the middle. He has this blonde hair, and he looks kind of like a jock. This always has this sort of smirk on his face. And so Don clearly not going to be one of our heroes here in the story. Anyway, we have this conversation where Don says, Hey, Napoleon, what'd you do all last summer again? I told you, I spent it with my uncle in Alaska hunting wolverines. Did you shoot any? Yes, like 50 of them. They kept trying to attack my cousins. What the heck would you do in a situation like that? What kind of gun did you use? And Napoleon responds, Frickin' 12 gauge, what do you think? So this conversation <laughs> just cuts immediately. Like there's no more to it. It's just this one random conversation. And then it goes to a whole different scene where we immediately see Napoleon in a headlock. There's some bully character. Uh, he's got him in a headlock by the lockers. Cut from that, and we are now at the office, one of the desks in the main office here. And Napoleon is asking to use the phone. The secretary or whoever it is there at the desk says, is there anything wrong? And he just says, I don't feel very good. And so he picks up the phone and he calls home. We see, for the first time, his older brother, Kip. Now, Kip is much older than a high school student. He has glasses, he has his hair parted to the side, 
and he's got a mustache and he's got this humongous block of cheese and he's grating it over a plate of nachos whenever Napoleon calls. Napoleon asks Kip to bring him his chapstick and Kip refuses. Napoleon says, But my lips hurt real bad. I just borrowed some from the school nurse. I know she has like five sticks in her drawer. I'm not going to use hers, you sicko. See ya. So Napoleon is trapped at school. As he's walking away from the phone, we see a man who turns out to be the principal. He's talking to a student, and the student does not seem to be understanding him too well. Napoleon asks if this is a new kid, and the principal asks him to show him to his locker. This new kid's name is Pedro. Pedro has just come from Mexico, and he is now in the school here. Napoleon is now talking to Pedro at the locker. You know, there's like a buttload of gangs at this school. This one gang kept wanting me to join because I'm pretty good with the bow staff. And then he asks Pedro what kind of bike he has. We go outside and we see that Pedro's bike is a type called a sledgehammer. Napoleon is very impressed because it has shocks and pegs, has a Mexican flag waving off of it. It's really tricked out. From there, we go over to Pedro's house where the two of them are taking the bike off of this little ramp that they have set up on the sidewalk. Pedro hits it just fine. Napoleon claims that he got like three feet of air that time. And then Napoleon tries the ramp and it just totally collapses, sending him directly into the handlebars. Uh, his, let's just say his um, nether regions make some contact there and he ends up in a little bit of pain. According to John Heater himself, he said it didn't hurt that bad, but that apparently this took three times to get the scene right. From there, we head over to Napoleon's house, and we see his brother Kip sitting at the computer. This is a beautiful 1990s era PC. It is just, it looks like my first computer that I used to connect to the internet for the first time, but Kip is there, he's typing away, and he's sort of reciting almost like a poem that he seems to be typing. I love the way your sandy hair floats in the air. To me, it's like a lullaby. I'm just flying by, oh, so high, like a kite tied to a stick. It sounds a little bit like a love poem, actually. As Napoleon is standing there in the kitchen, his grandma comes in. She's wearing a yellow shirt that has bears on it. And she has this gray, sort of spiky type hair. And she asks Napoleon, How was school? Worst day of my life. What do you think? Well, I want you to go see if Tina wants some of this. We don't know who Tina is yet, but we'll find out soon. She also tells us that her and Napoleon's aunt are going to go visit some friends and that she's not going to be back until tomorrow but she has Lyle coming over to take care of the fact that they are now low on steak. So just remember the Lyle and the steak. That'll come back later. Napoleon asks, what's there to eat? And Grandma says, Knock it off, Napoleon. Make yourself a dang quesadilla. Fine. I'll be back tomorrow. Grandma leaves, and Napoleon is clearly annoyed because as he's looking to snack on some chips, Kip ate most of them. And Kip and Napoleon start to get into a little bit of an argument. Kip says, Napoleon, don't be jealous that I've been chatting online with babes all day. Besides, 
We both know I'm training to become a cage fighter. Since when, Kip? You have the worst reflexes of all time. Try and hit me, Napoleon. What? I said, come down here and see what happens if you try and hit me. As they're about to sort of, it almost looks like slap fight each other a little bit, the doorbell rings. And Napoleon says that he'll go get it. But before he does, when Kip lowers his guard, he slaps him in the face, almost knocking off his glasses. We see Napoleon now on the porch, and there is a girl in a fanny pack standing there. She has this sort of ponytail, but it's on the side of her head instead of in the back. And she has a bunch of different crafts and things that she's holding in this sort of organizer that she has. She also hands him a picture, and she says, Would you like to look like this? The picture is of some sort of 90s-looking model type of girl. She has blonde hair and sort of like a jean jacket sort of thing on. And Napoleon says, this is a girl. And then Deb, without missing a beat, says, Because for a limited time only, glamour shots by Deb are 75% off. I already get my hair cut at the cotton corral. Napoleon doesn't seem interested, and so Deb continues trying to make her sale. She says maybe you'd be interested in some home-woven handicrafts. Meanwhile, we cut to the inside. And we see Kip. He is watching the TV, and an ad comes on. After one week with me and my dojo, you'll be prepared to defend yourself with the strength of a grizzly, the reflexes of a puma, and the wisdom of a man. The ad is for something called the Rex Kwando Self-Defense System. There's this really tough-looking guy. He's wearing, like, a bandana, and he's got these American flag-themed clothes on. And he says that there is a free trial lesson if you come down to the dojo. So we see Kip writing this down, and he seems very interested. Back on the porch, Deb is not having any luck making any money from Napoleon here. She says that she's trying to earn money for college. And then from inside, Kip yells out, Your mom goes to college. He seems very self-satisfied with this, like it's the best joke he's ever heard. I love the look on his face here. So then Deb clearly is taken aback. She seems hurt by this mean statement from Kip. And so she shoves all of her stuff at Napoleon and just runs off, abandoning everything on the porch. Napoleon then finally goes outside to feed Tina. We find out she is, in fact, a llama. She doesn't seem to want to eat anything, so he starts flinging it over the fence at her and says, Tina, eat your food! When he gets back from that, Kip is putting on his blades, and he says, it would be nice if you could pull me into town. And we get this weird scene of Napoleon on his bike with Kip tethered to the bike, holding on to some sort of string or something, and he's wearing his blades. So he's blading with the bike as Napoleon is pulling him into town. Evidently, this whole pulling into town thing was actually based off of something that the writer and his brothers used to do when they were kids. So, so there you have the origin of that. I think this is a good place to stop, though, before we get to the dojo uh, where we will meet Rex. I mean, how is that not Back to the Future, you know, with with Marty hanging <laughs> yeah. onto the truck? <laughs> totally. That's what that reminded yeah. me of. Yeah, me too, actually. Yeah, All so right. a lot of cool scenes to kind of dissect, a lot of interesting things, that, tidbits we can talk about. You know, for my mindset, viewing this movie, and if you care to have kind of my picture, I'm seeing Kip as kind of this low-life basement dweller type. 
very judgmental, but obviously not really capable of doing anything. The guy's having cheese chips for dinner or whatever. He's chatting on babes online, not working or doing anything and just kind of sitting around. So that's important to know he's kind of just aimless in life to an extent. Napoleon, we've seen him be bullied. He's obviously a little bit awkward, nerdy. He gets teased a lot. And so he's trying to find his place. We do have Pedro, who obviously, you know, he's coming to Mexico, so he's trying to fit in. He's trying to fill a role somehow, some way. And then Deb, obviously an entrepreneur of some sort, where she is awkward and shy as well, but she's trying to raise money for college and make something more with herself. So you have all these different storylines starting to emerge with these different characters. Yeah, definitely. We start to see sort of what they're what they're lacking, what they're missing, and what they're going for, what they're trying to achieve a little bit. Kip, I totally agree. Uh, one thing I should mention about Kip is that he is also this super thin, just like wiry dude. Like, And so the, the part about him saying that he's training to become a cage fighter, I kind of wish we could have seen more of that, but uh, they never reference that again later in the movie, unfortunately. And that is one issue that unfortunately, given the podcast, we can't do. There is so much physical humor here, especially with like Kip and Napoleon fighting that we can't articulate. They are the most ineptly physically gifted people you could possibly imagine. I mean, they the <laughs> fact that he's a cage fighter just doesn't work. It just do- doesn't line up. We can talk about it, but unfortunately, you do have to watch the movie to see it. So that is one element that we are missing out on because the physical humor here and how they walk and how they move in some of their mannerisms is just everywhere. Just the deadpan expressions, even it's everywhere. Yeah. Well, the deadpan expressions, especially for Napoleon, how he like never cracks a smile. He always has this sort of just resting face, like all the time. It's really hard to explain verbally. So let me ask you about this. So in the scene with Napoleon trying to go home, He's talking about you know, his, his lips hurting real bad and how he needs his chapstick. And when Kip suggests that he go to the nurse, Napoleon says she doesn't know anything. So let me ask you this. What was your nurse situation like in school? And did you ever get out of school? Did you go down to the nurse and get picked up? Would your parents do that? Like, would they come get you? What was that situation like? Yeah, so we did have a nurse... And this was only really in elementary school. I never in high school ever got out. It never happened. I think in elementary school, it happened twice where one time I had vomited. So I got to get sent home and another time I had a fever. And that's about it. Maybe two times in my whole life. High school, definitely not. I don't ever remember going to a nurse for anything, not even sports related injuries. It's just, thankfully I dodged bullets there. What about you? No, I'm pretty similar. I did go some in elementary school. I think I did throw up once, I'm pretty sure. And so that then I, I was out for that. Um, I feel like in middle school, maybe once or twice, I got out too. I don't remember doing it in high school. But the nurse is always very limited in what she can do. She can't really give you medication or anything. There's like lots of rules. It's more like you can go sit down and lay down. Like maybe she can give you an ice pack or something. And, you know, so if there's anything really wrong with you, you're going to go home. But thankfully that didn't happen to me too often. I do like here how we learn a little bit about his family. Clearly their parents are not around. We don't know what the situation is. They never explain that. But all we know is that the grandma's taking care of them and they live with her. So that's his mom basically is his grandmother. 
and we don't have any father figure at all, uh, unless you count Uncle Rico, which, you know, we'll meet him in a little while. No, I definitely, definitely wouldn't call him a father figure. (laughs) And yeah, Grandma's an interesting character. It seems like she just, it hit me with feeding Tina the llama. I was curious, I mean, did Napoleon not even know how to feed her, or is that how she's fed? Is it something about the food? It seemed to me like the Grandma just kind of, is kind of sick of having them live with her. And so she just doesn't care. So she says, I'm, you know, I'm leaving. Uh, I'm gonna, she's just going to go for a trip and see you later and feed the llama, never explaining how to feed the llama. It seemed like Napoleon didn't know what food to feed her or how to feed her. And she just said, I'm out of here because she just was tired of still having this type of responsibility. I mean, Napoleon should be the one by default feeding the llama, given his age, or at least Kip, right? Yeah, well, this sort of got me thinking about like feeding pets and kids. So what I can speak to is the pet element of that. My dog, he is very picky with food. So we got him a certain type of kibble. He doesn't really like the kibble by itself. We got that particular kind because it's it's very healthy. And so we then had to also get like a wet food topper to put on the kibble so he would eat that. And so I have these very sophisticated dog foods. They're like international themed wet foods. They're made out of like different, uh, like basic recipes from different parts around the world. There's like a French one and an Italian one and a Chinese one and an Indian one. And they all have different ingredients in them that are related to the cuisine of those parts of the world. And he loves those. So I even got him to the point now where he will choose which one he wants. So I'll take like three of the cups or more in some cases, but three is a good number, three different ones. I'll put them on the ground and I'll say, Hey, what one do you want today, buddy? And he'll push one of them with his nose. Like he pushes one, he'll like sniff them and then he'll push one of them. And then I immediately pick it up and dump it into his bowl. So he knows that he's getting it. That's pretty great, I have to say. One of my biggest accomplishments uh, with training. But he can be very finicky. He can be very picky. So if Tina doesn't like this food, I could totally see her not eating it. Animals will do that sometimes, like especially if they're used to like having things a certain way and like it's different. They're very routine based. I can't speak too much to llamas, but I, you know, to dogs at least. So what is your feeding experience like? You don't have any pets to feed. How are the kids with eating? Do they are they going to be like Tina here and be very picky, <laughs> or or what's happening? Well, I, I look at this from a multifold perspective. First of all, the perspective of like what you said about what to eat. So yeah, my kids are pretty picky. You know, my son's very much you know just feed him chicken tenders and hamburgers. He's picky in like that way where he won't eat more exotic foods. If that makes sense, he's actually really easy to feed, but you have to not overthink it. And then my daughter has more allergies and whatnot. So we have to be a little bit more concerned about what she eats, but she's picky too, where she doesn't like sauces and whatnot. And so the second part of this is also just reflecting kind of on the grandma and the situation based on what you said. And my kids, like anytime my wife and I drop our kids off, they have food provided for them. We pack it. We tell them this is what they eat, yada, yada. So no one has to worry about anything. And based on what you said about your dog, same thing. Imagine dropping your dog off someplace which I know you don't do, but imagine that happening, right? And you just don't give them any context. That's what this grandma did. She just left Tina there and without any instructions for Napoleon. And then he 
biffed it. And as far as I know, Tina's just not eating. So I don't know if this is the grandma just not caring or if this is more reflective on Napoleon not caring, but something's wrong here. There's some discord here with Tina because I want her to eat. I want her to get her proper food. And as Me far too. as I know, she's not, she's not eating. We do know that Tina survives because we see her at the end of the movie. So at least we know that. But yeah, there is some disconnect. To me, I always assumed that Napoleon just wasn't trying hard enough because he like he doesn't care. I do like that you say that he biffed it because he does that quite a lot. He does that with the bike ramp that we just talked about. He also does it with when he climbs the fence later on and falls down like right on his face, basically. So this is a clumsy character for sure, and he's not very graceful. But yeah, I hope that Tina is getting something there. You know, I hope at some point she's getting something. Maybe they could try the cheese chips because they look delicious. And I will say, I kind of made fun of Kip a little bit for having that as his main snack. But honestly, it's one of our go-tos in our family. My wife really got me into it. She calls it baby chips. But it's, yeah, it's cheese, literally just cheese and chips. I kind of add it to be more nachos with like a sour cream or a chili or whatnot. But she had to teach me the layering technique of basically putting down chips, making sure they're all covered in cheese, then layering another thing of chips. Because when I started, I would just put all the chips down and just dump cheese. And then you have so many chips left over without cheese. And it seems like Kip probably got some skills here because he's actually grating the cheese over it. So maybe maybe that is a skill here that I'm selling Kip a little bit short on. Well, I, I think you're right. I think that that's a great technique from your wife as well. I also do that, um, maybe not as well as she does, but it's a typical thing for us to have nachos. Like I'll, I'll throw on some, you know, vegetarian uh, beef, uh, you know, some plant, plant-based stuff. And then I put it in there with, you know, cheese, um, Taco Bell sauce, whatever else. Sometimes I put olives on it. I mean, I get wild sometimes. You never know what's going to go on there. So yeah, I'm with Kip on this one. It seems like they're obviously living in a very agricultural place. And, you know, because they have later on, we'll see that they have a cow. Like, that's why, that's where they get their, their meat from. Like, so, and then, so Kip has this cheese. It's this huge block. It makes me wonder if that's like a local cheese or like if they even make it themselves i have no idea but like because they have farm animals so so who knows well i don't think it's kip and napoleon with the skills no (laughs) (laughs) talking a little bit about pedro's sweet bike bikes were pretty big back then and my best friend growing up actually kind of got big into bmx biking this was kind of the craze with tony hawk's pro skater on the 64 and it kind of caveated out into BMX with Dave Mira. And he actually had his own game line as well. But my friend got super into this. He got tons of money for these. It's like a standard frame bike. And I remember that being a big deal. And he would actually be doing tricks. But I always knew pegs for that purpose, where basically you would use them to grind on like boxes or poles in the park. It was actually so bad of people riding these that our park installed a little mini skate park just for guys to do this. So they weren't doing it near the baseball fields and whatnot. So that was my experience with bikes. But I remember Peg just being the coolest thing ever. You know, when you got to ride on the back of one, you're just an awesome person. And I never had one growing up. I, you know, I, no one could ever ride the back of my bike. No, I didn't have that either. I mean, I just had a standard bike. I, I was not nearly as cool as Pedro. Pedro does have a lot of sweet hookups like throughout this entire movie. And so that, that's just one of his major skills is that he has the sweet bike. And Napoleon will reference that again later. 
I got to clarify something here. So you said standard bike. Standard was actually a brand of a professional <laughs> bike. So I want to make I had that a very cheap bike. That's <laughs> what I meant to say. You had a cheap bike. <laughs> And a very cheap bike that was very just simple. <laughs> Likewise. Yeah. Five speeders. Was, <laughs> yes, exactly. So, and I thought, and I thought that was a big deal, you know, being able to switch speeds because my initial bike didn't even have that. It was just a bike. Didn't even have speeds on it. Yeah. The speeds were kind of cool. Cause like if you had it on one, it would basically go really fast and you could, or maybe it was the other way around, but no. at the one setting you could just go really fast, but you wouldn't, with your feet because the chain would be really easy to move but your bike wouldn't go that fast and then if you went to the max level it was really hard to pedal but you could get some some pretty sick air you know yeah like three feet <laughs> like three feet of air that time now one other thing that i noticed here was the whole thing with kip i have to talk about his computer and everything there so he's typing up this little poem and we know that he's chatting. He claims that he's chatting with babes all day is what he says. And so we're going to have to just keep an eye on that and see if this bears out or not. Because obviously, if you're watching this for the first time, Kip clearly is lying about training to become a cage fighter. So you may also question the situation with his chatting. So just sort of keep that in the back of your mind. But that computer that reminded me so much of like my first PC that, you know, it's just this big boxy thing. And, you know, you definitely would have, you know, 56 K dial up modem or something like that. And he's in a chat room. So this brought back all kinds of memories. I don't think he actually tells us too much about the chat at this point. He just says he's been chatting online, but I imagine he's in some like AOL chat. Like he's probably using, like the free hour discs that would come in the mail and he's using those to do his chats. Were you a big uh, chat room dude back in the day? I I did get into them a decent amount. You know, I'd go into like the AOL, they had the different categories of chats and I'd go into ones that had to do with gaming or whatever it was. Not always even with people I knew just into the chats with random people. So did you get up to any of that? Oh yeah. Chat rooms are pretty big. And then, but they inevitably went to creepy where it was like, you know, ASL, you know, age, sex location. And then, you know, they'd want to, who knows, you'd be like, Oh, time to X out. Like this is not, <laughs> you know, so obviously that, that was a predator, ha- predator haven there. Um, so you kind of have to be careful out there with those, with those chat rooms. But yeah, it was a good place to talk to people at all times and, you know, share interests and whatnot and have some fun. Now, one thing I've got to say about this is that I learned from the commentary that Kip's poem that he's doing is all improv. Also, the food that they were giving to Tina was cream of mushrooms with croutons. It was a mix of those things. Jared Hess, the writer, said that when he was growing up, it was all about reflexes in his family. It was always about how good were your reflexes. And that's what Kip and Napoleon are sort of arguing about is who has the better reflexes. Now, I, I had no siblings. Did, did you and your siblings like get into like reflex competitions, like who could hit the other faster or something like that? No, nothing like that. I mean, the only real competition that my parents would, it was mainly my dad. And I was like with running, you know, he was, he loved, he was a marathon runner and he would time us and stuff with, with speed. But even then, I mean, that was not even, anything remotely competitive or something that would drive us against each other. It was just more kind of fun to 
test our speed and whatnot. Okay, yeah. So the boondoggle keychains that Deb is selling are actually made by the cast. Like, just all the different people that were involved in the production, I guess they all pitched in to make all these different boondoggles. So um, you'll see plenty of those throughout the movie. She has a ton of them in that container that she has. They really made quite a lot. Yeah, and they're kind of still around. You know, my daughter will make them for friends and, and vice versa. So they're still kind of around to decorate and usually it's like a friendship bracelet or whatnot that she cherishes and will make one for someone else and it's it's kind of cute one other thing that i noticed is that this house seems like it is back in time i mean it is 2004 but it seems like it's even a bit earlier a lot of the stuff is wood paneling everywhere there's flower patterned couches and they've got a landline phone attached in the kitchen area it reminds me of because I grew up in an, like kind of an old house, an older feeling house, the way it was furnished and everything. And we had those landline phones everywhere. So to me, it felt kind of familiar, but also like they're in this tiny little town kind of in the middle of nowhere. And it's like they're even back in time a little bit, even from 2004. Did, did you pick up on any of that? For you already mentioned the computer, but for me, that fridge that really hits like what all the old fridges used to look like. <laughs> all the fridge, yes. It's like the grandma. It's like the guaranteed grandma fridge right there. We, yeah, it's it was just it was just the perfect fridge. It it must have been the one everyone had. Oh yeah, I agree. I think my grandma had that too, <laughs> for real. So yeah, all right. So lots of great stuff there. Let's move ahead to Rex's dojo. They finally get to town, and we see inside of the dojo. Rex, this big dude, he's wearing these America pants. They're like American flag down each leg, like the red, white, and blue. He's talking about how he has this eight-week program that he developed when he fought for two years in the octagon. And he wants a volunteer to help him demonstrate. So Kip volunteers. He gets up and goes up to the front. And Rex says, bow to your sensei. Bow to your sensei! He goes through this back and forth with Kip where he asks him to try to hit him a few times. He blocks Kip. He smacks him a couple of times. And then he eventually tells him to take a seat. Rex then tells us that... Second off, you're going to learn to discipline your image. Do you think I got where I am today because I dress like Peter Pan here? Take a look at what I'm wearing, people. Do you think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? And he points to his pants. He also says that nobody's going to make fun of him because he goes home to Starla at night. And he shows this picture on the wall. We sort of get a close-up of this woman who looks to me like an American gladiator. And she's like this bodybuilder-type woman. And then he finally drops that his eight-week program will cost $300. Kip and Napoleon then are on their way back home. And Kip says, well, that place was a rip-off. Next up, we're back at Napoleon's house. We see that Napoleon now is gathering up Deb's stuff, and he's getting ready to go on the bus. As the bus pulls up, Lyle, the man who was sent over to take care of the steak situation, is fumbling around, getting ready to shoot one of the cows in the field. Just as he pulls the trigger, the bus pulls up, and all these kids scream as they see Lyle putting down the cow. Pretty rough situation here. Apparently, this happened for real. 
This is a real life story from Jared Hess. Uh, this happened to his little brother, I guess, uh, in this town. We go back over to the school and we see Napoleon up front in the classroom. He's performing with a group of girls and it says on the board, Happy Hands Club. And they are basically doing this sort of almost sign language type thing where they're doing hand movements to music. Don, the guy who is making fun of Napoleon in the locker room, is in the front and he is snickering at Napoleon the whole time and just clearly thinks that Napoleon is a huge dork. Next up, we are at the bleachers outside, and we see Pedro and Napoleon sitting there talking about asking girls to the dance that is coming up, the homecoming. Napoleon asks if Pedro has asked anyone yet, and he says, later on after school, he's going to ask that girl right there. And it turns out that she is none other than Summer Wheatley. Summer Wheatley? How the heck are you going to do that? Build her a cake or something. She is the top cheerleader, okay? She is the blonde cheerleader popular girl at this school. So Pedro has set his sights high here. Napoleon then says that I guess him and Pedro are friends now, and Pedro agrees. Napoleon suggests that he has a girl that he would take with him, but he can't because she's busy doing some modeling right now. When Pedro asks if this girl that he's dating is good-looking, Napoleon pulls out the photo that Deb had left on his porch of the model, and he says, see for yourself, and he hands it to Pedro. Pedro seems pretty impressed, and so that ends our scene. Our heroes, if we can call them that, are in the lunchroom, and Napoleon is asking how long it took Pedro to grow out his mustache. Pedro says it only took a couple of days. Napoleon then asks if Pedro is going to finish his tots, referring to the tater tots that are on his tray. Pedro says no, so Napoleon grabs them, and he puts them into this sort of zipper pocket that he has in his cargo pants. Napoleon then points out Deb to Pedro, and he says that she left all this stuff on his porch. Pedro looks over and says she's pretty good looking, and Napoleon asks if Pedro dares him to go talk to her. And so Pedro says, sure. Napoleon goes over, and he sits down across from Deb. Deb's eating a sandwich. She has some of it on her face. She looks a little bit confused when Napoleon sits down. And Napoleon drops the single greatest pickup line of all time. He sees that Deb is drinking some milk, and he says, I see you drinking 1%. Is that because you think you're fat? Because you're not. You could be drinking whole if you wanted to. Well, I have all your equipment in my locker. Should probably come get it because I can't fit my nunchucks in there anymore. So they go over to Napoleon's locker. Uh, he gives her all of her stuff and asks for one of her boondoggles. She gives him one, and as he tries to sort of clip it to his pants... She already walks off and is gone by the time that he looks up. So Napoleon here not getting any further FaceTime here with Deb. We then cut to Grandma. She's at the sand dunes, and she's riding around on an ATV. There are a few people there cheering, and they look like they're having a great time. But then Grandma goes up over a rise in the dunes and takes a nasty spill off of the ATV. Apparently this was actually a real... ATV rider from Utah that they got to bring in, 
and he did this stunt twice for the scene. This finally brings us to one of our last major characters. We see a van out in a field, and it's this sort of orange, ugly van. There's a man in front, and he's throwing footballs. He he has a camera set up, though, so he's filming it, but he's throwing footballs around. He's wearing this sort of, like, turtleneck sweater type of thing, and he has a gold chain around it, and the phone rings, and he goes to answer it. We don't really hear what it's about, though. Back at the school, there's a bully, the same one who had Napoleon in the headlock earlier, and he wants some of his tots. He sees Napoleon eating the tots out of his pocket, and he says, Napoleon, give me some of your tots. No, go find your own. Come on, give me some of your tots. No, I'm freaking starved. I didn't get to eat anything today. (sighs) So then the kid kicks his pocket, and the tots get smashed. They fall out. Napoleon says, Gross! Freaking idiot! And that's the whole scene. I love that scene. Brilliant. That brings us back to Napoleon's house, where he's trying to once again feed Tina, but before he can even get started, we hear this funky music as the van from before drives down the road. Napoleon utters a deep sigh. None other than Uncle Rico gets out of the van. He tells us, Grandma took a little spill at the sand dunes today. Broke her coccyx. What? Since when does she go to the dunes? And Uncle Rico says, after a pause, kind of sizes up Napoleon, and he says, Looks like there's a lot you don't know about her. We cut to the inside, and Uncle Rico says that he doesn't know when Grandma is coming back, and he has to stay with them until she does. Napoleon says they're not babies. Uncle Rico says, tell that to your Aunt Caroline. And then Kip says, I don't mind if you stay. So we have a little sucking up here from Kip to Uncle Rico, which will continue throughout a good part of the film. We also learn that Grandma was actually at the dunes with her boyfriend on a date, and Napoleon knows nothing of this at all. Then he finally asks them if they want to see his video. So they sit down on the couch, and we see this horrible video of Uncle Rico throwing footballs around while he films himself. While he's watching the video, he kind of laments, Man, I wish I could go back in time. I'd take state. Napoleon Napoleon says, This is pretty much the worst video ever made. And then Kip says, Napoleon, like anyone, can even know that. And then Uncle Rico kicks Napoleon out of the house. From there, we cut over to a place called Big J's. It says it's a great place to eat on the sign. This is actually a real place. Uh, According to the director commentary, this was a mom-and-pop burger joint in Preston. I actually looked it up, and it's still open. So if anyone wants to go, you can go. We have a discussion between Kip and Uncle Rico here. Kip says, so you and Tammy still together? And Uncle Rico says... Nah, she's jealous. Says I'm living too much in 82. Then Uncle Rico asks how things are going with Kip and his girlfriend he talks to online. And Kip tells us that things are getting pretty serious right now. We chat online for like two hours every day, so I guess you could say things are getting pretty serious. I'm just really trying to raise a few bucks right now so I can bring her out for a few days. Yeah. What does she look like? She's uh, she's got sandy blonde hair. She's uh, 
pretty looking, pretty good looking face, but I'm just getting really just kind of TO'd because uh, she hasn't even sent me a full body shot yet. Uncle Rico seems to have lost interest at this point, and he says, Listen, I have a plan to make a little moolah. Have you ever heard of nylon polymer? We have a hard cut from this over to Summer's house, where Pedro has actually snuck to her door with a cake. He rings the bell and then runs off. He hops onto his bike with Napoleon, and they ride off. We see Summer as she bends down and picks up the cake. Finally, now we're back over to Napoleon's house again, and Kip and Rico are on the porch. Rico's telling Kip, Back in 82, I used to be able to throw a pigskin a quarter mile. Are you serious? I'm dead serious. At that exact moment, Napoleon and Pedro are coming down the road, and Rico says, watch this. He grabs the steak off of Kip's plate, because they're outside eating steak. He grabs the steak, and he throws it and beams Napoleon directly in the forehead with it. He knocks his glasses off, everything. Napoleon says, what the heck are you doing? And then from the porch, Kip chimes in, that's what I'm talking about. Napoleon disappears from the scene here, and Uncle Rico is still kind of lamenting his past. He says, How much you want to make a bet I can throw a football over the mountains? Yeah, coach would have put me in fourth quarter. We'd have been state champions, no doubt. No doubt in my mind. You better believe things would have been different. I'd have gone pro. In a heartbeat. I'd be making millions of dollars and living in a big old mansion somewhere you know soaking it up in a hot tub with my soulmate and then finally he asks kip i reckon you know a lot about cyberspace you ever come across anything like time travel and kip says easy i've already looked into it for myself and we end the scene with uncle rico looking off into the distance saying right on right on well, I don't know that Uncle Rico's wrong. You probably could have played QB for the Browns, quite frankly. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. So, yeah, this is our introduction to Uncle Rico. <laughs> and he's the one living in the past, thinking he could have been great, refusing to kind of live in the present. And that's kind of his overarching theme here. A very interesting character because right off the bat, I mean, his throwing form is absolutely terrible. It basically is, it's like not even a sidearm. It's kind of like an underhand throw <laughs> that would just hit a lineman in the back. So it's like kind of impossible for him to actually be successful. And he says he could throw the ball a quarter mile with that arm. Nope. You could, I mean, you probably couldn't even throw 10 yards with that form. <laughs> I did the maths here. So a mile is 5,280 feet. A quarter mile would be 1,320 feet. And with a hundred yards <laughs> being a football field, he is claiming he can throw it over four football fields deep. So that's how outrageous his claim is. Although you got to give him some credit for that stake throw. That was pretty legit. That was really good. According to the commentary, they did that scene with the stake throw four different times. And John Heder says that, John Heater says that it took two misses. Third one hit him in the armpit. And then the fourth one is the one that nailed him in the face. Apparently, it gave him a big old bruise when it ripped off his glasses. Another thing that's kind of an interesting fact about Uncle Rico is that the actor here is 
a vegetarian or a vegan. He doesn't eat meat. So in all of these scenes with the steak, he's actually spitting it out. And so if you look in the scene in the kitchen before this, when he's eating the steak in there, he spits it out into a napkin. And then in this scene, when he hits him with the steak, when he walks back to the porch, you can actually see him take it and put it on the plate. He, he like takes it out and puts it down on the plate. That's so weird. They just wouldn't use like a, a substitute, but I guess it would look the same because they do like a close up of the steak. Yes, they do. It's, it's definitely real steak. But I love that you did the math on that, by the way. That's some that's solid research. Right? This is what we do for you guys. Like all of you listeners out there, you know, we do the hard work for you guys. So you don't have to figure it out for yourselves. That's pretty awesome. Did you ever have a, a moment like that that you like go back and say, man, if X happened, I'd be Y? I have nothing remotely comparable uh, to that where I was like, oh, man, it could have been big. But sports-wise in high school, I tried out for the basketball team my freshman year. And I was big into basketball. It was, it was the sport I put by far the most time in. I would always be outside shooting hoops. I talked a little bit about that in our Super Specs episode, playing around the world and whatnot. But I was always playing basketball. I just love the sport. I basically, I remember prior to tryouts, because tryouts, you start school kind of around August and you have tryouts more towards the fall. Every single day, I was probably playing two to three hours of full court basketball in preparation for this. It was so bad. I lost so much weight that my mom actually pulled me aside and said, hey, Paul, are you okay? Like she thought maybe I developed an eating disorder. And it's like, no, I'm just playing full court basketball every day. Well, tryouts come and again, private elite high school and whatnot really good players, but I felt pretty competent. I was able to score and whatnot, but I got these brand new shoes and it was really nice that my mom bought them for me, but they had these like zippers. It was kind of like a shoe. And then I had an outskirt that looked really cool, but the zipper kept unzipping. And then the strap kept falling off during the full cord games. And so I constantly had to put it back on, stop, rezip, do that over and over again. And I feel, I really feel like that impacted their decision to cut me. And I was, oh man, I remember I was crying my eyes out, devastated. And, and I remember just sitting all by myself at a table and one of my older brother's friends came over and just like comforted me. And it was like, I'll never forget that, but he was so nice to do that. But that was such a devastating moment for me. And in retrospect, knowing the guys that made the team and who didn't, I wouldn't have been on the team because I was kind of a tweener. I wasn't tall enough. To, I was I basically played center and power forward in elementary school, but I wasn't tall enough at the next level to be that. I needed to be a point guard, but my ball handling wasn't as strong. So I can't sit back for Uncle Rico, but that was one moment that made me at least think of somewhat of a regret from high school. Wow. Uh, I mean, the shoes, you know what? I mean, it kind of sounds like that could have been it. Six foot NBA star. Yeah, that could have been me for sure. You could have been, no <laughs> doubt. You'd, you'd be up there. I could see you'd be playing for the Cavs right now. LeBron who, you know, that's what they'd be saying in Cleveland. <laughs> I guess there are things where I could say, what if I just did something different? Like, what if I did a different major in school, like where you'd like make lots of money? Or what if I took a different job when I when I got out of school, did this or that? But it's one of those things where I don't really want my life to deviate from how it is, really. So it's one of those things where you don't really want to change too many past experiences. Because then, I mean, we're talking about time travel here, you know, with, with Kip. I mean, who knows what repercussions you're going to 
cause at that point. And, you know, having grown up watching lots of Star Trek, you go back in time, you never know what you're going to do if you mess with the timeline. So, I mean, if this was me, I'm probably not going to be involved with time travel too much. But yeah, as far as regrets, like thinking about if I had just done this or that, I feel like I would have had to have made a change that would be so radical. Like I did a different career that it would, it would change everything. Like, you know, I would, I wouldn't have met people that I met and, you know, it, it would just totally change my life entirely. So I don't really regret anything that seriously. I'm definitely not living in 82 since I was not born yet. Uncle Rico, though, he seems like he's stuck. He kind of reminds me of like Al Bundy from uh, Married with Children because that character's whole backstory was that like he was this, you know, high school football player. You know, he could have gone pro, but he did, you know, he wasn't able to. And, you know, so he kind of reminds me of this a little bit. It's kind of like Gordon Bombay, but just he's terrible. Um, <laughs> like Gordon Bombay has actual regrets because he got hurt. Uncle Rico's, I mean, he was terrible. He says that he was not in the fourth quarter in a state championship game, which implies he was riding the bench. So like if you're not a starting QB on a team, how useful are you? And I know our football team in high school, everyone made the team. Unlike basketball, there were no cuts. So as long as you wanted to play and put the time in, you were on the team. So that's kind of what I figured happened here. He probably just was this person that just wanted to be this huge QB, but he was terrible, but they kept him around just to be nice and whatnot, didn't want to cut him. That seems like what happened here. That was kind of what me in tennis in high school, where I was on the team, but wasn't good enough to start, ended up starting in college somehow. That's how competitive high school was for me. But yeah, it seems like he was just kind of riding the bench is kind of maybe a morale booster or something but in his mind he's delusional <laughs> thinking he's gonna be leading the team to the state championship right yeah it seems like it's not based on anything like he probably never played a snap in a real game that's sort of what i get from this so yeah i'm totally with you on that and another thing i love here is that uncle rico refers to the internet as cyberspace it kind of <laughs> takes me back like you remember in the early days of the internet there were all these ridiculous things, like they used to call it the information superhighway or cyberspace. I feel like all that went by the wayside at some point. No one uses those words anymore, but it really brought me back to how people used to talk about the internet. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm, and a lot of those made it into the titles of certain ISP providers as well. But yeah, I'm glad we have a, a common name now for the internet. Agreed. It's it's a lot better. It's It's not as lame, to be honest. I mean... So I think that what I love about this, too, is that Kip seems like he's got it all figured out. He's like, easy. Time travel? I'm on it. And so I can't wait to see what the fruits of that are going to turn out to be here. It's going to be, it's going to pay off nicely. One other important point regarding Summer Wheatley. I did not know this until I started researching, but Paul, do you know who Summer Wheatley is played by in this film. It's none other than Haley Duff, Hillary Duff's older sister. And I remember watching it and saying, it looks exactly like Hillary Duff. What's going on? This is freaking me out. And then you texted me randomly that it was. Yeah. And my mind just went. Poof. Yeah, I had no clue. I had no idea. And back at this time when it came out, you know, Hillary Duff wasn't anything yet. And so Haley Duff here coming in, Summer Wheatley, it's just, it's just crazy to me to think that there's that connection there. Yeah, it's interesting that 
Pedro feels so confident going up to her. I don't know if it's because he's just so oblivious. Maybe he doesn't know her status since he's such a new kid. Maybe it's his awesome mustache that he just has some superpowers. I know in high school, I could not grow a mustache. They had a very strict policy about shaving, kind of taking us back to our Clarissa episode. If you had enough stubble, they would make you go to the sink and dry shave with a Bic razor. And so I don't even know if they could do that anymore. It'd probably be viewed as corporal punishment. <laughs> yeah, you got to have some cream or something. Like, nope. geez, that's horrible. Oof. Well, um, yeah, I, I think that Pedro's confidence, it's one of his main qualities. We don't really see it flag too often. There's only one point in the movie where he seems to lose his confidence. So we'll get to that eventually. But yeah, Pedro here going right for the most popular girl in school, who it seems is already dating Don, you know, the guy that we've mentioned a couple times before, because we'll see Don later at the dance. So I don't know if they were already together at this point or not, but by the time we get to the dance, you know, they will be. So it's, it's interesting that he thinks that he can just swoop in here. But Pedro does have a lot of skills, and we'll sort of see. I do like his plan. He has great ideas, like how he... One thing I did not mention, one of my favorite Pedro quotes... Uh, is back in the scene on the bleachers when Napoleon asks how he's going to ask out Summer Wheatley. Pedro says, maybe build her a cake or something. And to me, that is a great quote, but it's also a great idea. Later on, he gives Napoleon a great idea too. So, I mean, I think Pedro has some skills here. Yeah, I think a lot of this involves like the Mexican culture that he's bringing in. And we get more of that, you know, as the movie progresses, but I think he just really is this new kid who doesn't understand our customs. So he probably grew up thinking that's just a normal thing. If you like a girl, that's what you do. And in our culture, it'd be like, oh no, she's the popular girl. You can't just do that. You'll get made fun of by Ivan Drago. I mean, uh, Ron or Don Don, rather. (laughs) And and it does look like him, right? I mean, it's this the blonde hair with I'm thinking like Draco Malfoy. That's kind of what he he just it's the look. It's it's the blonde, super pale look. The bully every time it just seems. Yeah, yeah, it is. He's he's got the look. He's definitely in that same vein. Yeah, I don't know. So I mean, I, I'm always rooting for Pedro here, and, and we're gonna find out pretty shortly um, about a number of things here, especially with him and and Summer though. So in the very next scene, Summer approaches Napoleon as he is playing tetherball. She asks if Pedro is here today, and he's not, so she gives Napoleon a note to give to him. He asks Summer if she wants to play him in tetherball, but she refuses very harshly and walks away. We see the note close up. There's a heart on it on the front, has Pedro's name, but then on the inside... It says no with three exclamation points. So she intentionally fakes him out with the hearts on the front and then with a very rude dismissal inside. From there we go to the steps outside of the school. Napoleon is sitting there and he's drawing something. What are you drawing? A liger. What's a liger? It's pretty much my favorite animal. It's like a lion and a tiger mixed. Redford's skills and magic. Deb then says, where is your friend? Nobody has seen him, though. Deb asks if he needs a ride home, but he says his uncle is coming to get him. 
Right then, Uncle Rico's van pulls up and Napoleon leaves. Deb looks disappointed that Napoleon did not need a ride home. In Napoleon's house, he has a new shirt on. This one has another horse on it. This time it says Endurance. We get an exchange here uh, between Kip and Uncle Rico. They are sitting at the table and they have a big map of the town out. And they're basically charting out where they're going to go to sell their product. We see some boxes piled up. One of them says 32-piece set on it. So this must be what they're selling. But we still don't know what it is exactly. As they're sort of divvying up where they're going to go and everything, Napoleon takes the phone. He goes outside. Napoleon calls Pedro's house. A girl answers, probably Pedro's sister, but she says that Pedro's not there right now. When Napoleon goes back in, Kip and Uncle Rico decide to go somewhere more private. So they head off to the bowling alley. We see that they're playing with bumpers. Kip seems really happy with his attempt here. He does leave one pin standing, however, so this is not a strike by any means, but he's pretty excited. Uncle Rico then tells us that he has some concerns about Kip and his transportation situation. He says that he can borrow his van for now, but that they also need something to make them look official. How about some gold bracelets? We need, like, some name tags with our picture on it, all laminated and whatnot. I mean, we gotta look legit, man. That's true, that's true. Say, you know of a, a place we can get our picture taken, like a, a photo store? They end up going to Deb to get glamour shots for their name tags. So now we're in Deb's here with Kip and Uncle Rico. Rico's on a stool behind a background. He's getting ready to be photographed. Deb tells us that this is looking really good. And Kip says, you can say that again. Because obviously Kip, again, is sucking up to Uncle Rico as he's sitting there about to get his picture taken. Deb has this great quote where she's trying to get Uncle Rico to relax. And she says, Now, just imagine you're weightless. In the middle of the ocean, surrounded by tiny little seahorses. And then Uncle Rico says, Whoa, thanks, Deb. I felt really relaxed. When it's time for Kip to go to get his picture done, he says, Is there some kind of vest that I can wear? And then it cuts from there to the next scene. We are in the cafeteria. Pedro is back. He tells us he was sick. And Napoleon breaks the news that Summer told him no. Pedro looks sad for a split second, but then he says, What about Deb? And Napoleon seems confused. Turns out that... Pedro also asked Deb to the dance. She comes up with a note. This time, it says yes. Napoleon now is upset because he can't think of anybody to ask to go. He says nobody will go to the dance with him. Have you asked anybody yet? No, but who would? I don't even have any good skills. What do you mean? You know, like... Nunchuck skills, bow hunting skills, computer hacking skills... Girls only want boyfriends who have great skills. Aren't you pretty good at drawing, like, animals and warriors and stuff? Yes. Probably the best that I know of. Just draw a picture of the girl you want to take out and give it to her for, like, a gift or something. That's a pretty good idea. We see him at home picking out a girl from the yearbook, Trisha Stevens. 
We get some funky music playing, and Napoleon starts drawing. From there, we see Rico over at somebody's house. He is trying to make a sale. He's got the 24-piece set out on the table, and there is a free gift, this gigantic model ship that comes with the 24-piece set. Now, the wife seems like she's very enticed by this boat. She looks at her husband and she says, I want that. Rico tells us that these uh, Tupperwares, which are what he's really selling in the 24-piece set, are called Newpont Fiber Woven Bulls. And he hands one to the husband. His name is Lance. And he asks him to try to tear it and break it. Lance tries his hardest. His wife looks at him with disdain and disgust and just disappointment when he can't rip the bowl. It's one of the saddest things I've ever seen. This guy is just emasculated because he can't destroy this Tupperware. Meanwhile, Kip is trying to sell to somebody. He's got one of the bowls underneath the tire of Uncle Rico's van, like next to the tire, and he's ready to back up over it to show how strong it is. When he backs up, it immediately explodes, and Kip just says, dang it, and then drives off. So maybe his skills aren't quite as good as Uncle Rico's here. Napoleon is taking his drawing now to Trisha's house. When he gets there, Uncle Rico is already there, and he is trying to sell to Trisha's mom. Trisha's not there, but her mom agrees to take the drawing to her later, and then she sits down with Uncle Rico. Rico concocts the story about Napoleon. Poor kid. I've been taking care of him while his grandma's in the hospital. He still wits the bed and everything. You're kidding. Yeah, he's a tender little guy. He still gets beat up and whatnot. Anyway, uh... So we still feeling pretty good about this uh, 32-piece set here. Trisha's mom seems to buy into the story... She seems quite sympathetic. Back at Napoleon's house, he's got Kip in a headlock, and he's really angry over Rico being over at Trisha's house. Napoleon says, What the heck are you guys doing? Trying to ruin my life and make me look like a friggin' idiot? I'm out making some sweet moolah with Uncle Rico. Jeez, I think he ripped my mole off. I did? Yeah, is it bleeding? A little bit. When Uncle Rico comes in, he says... I wish you wouldn't look at me like that, Napoleon. And Napoleon says, I wish you'd get out of my life and shut up. Uncle Rico informs us that he made 120 bucks today, and Kip made 75. Napoleon storms out after they argue a little bit more. We cut over to Trisha's. She's opening up the drawing. There's a note that says, There's a lot more where this came from if you go to the dance with me. She opens it up. She seems excited when she's opening it up, but when she finally sees the drawing, it looks all deformed and weird, and it's just no good. But her mom appears from behind and says, you know that you're going to take that boy to the dance. Now, Napoleon has decided he's going to try to make some money, probably to show Uncle Rico that he can, and he's at a farm. I need them 8,000 hens moved into their new cages. Sometimes they don't want to cooperate. But you give them a good shake and that'll settle down for you. Do the chickens have large talons? Do they have what? Large talons. I don't understand the words you just said. 
This is more of like a physical comedy scene with Napoleon like messing around trying to get the chicken back into the cage and everything. Back outside, there's a really disgusting looking lunch. It's like 100 degrees outside and there is a table with egg sandwiches, boiled eggs, and a big jug of egg yolks and, and, and everything that have been like stirred together like Rocky style. It's just a big like liquid jug of egg. And it's pretty rough. Uh, Napoleon tries drinking some of it and gags. And then the farmer ends up paying them all in change. When he gets back home, he's counting it out. And he realizes that he only got paid $6. That's like a dollar an hour. Trisha finally calls and says that she's able to go to the dance. And also wanted to thank you for the beautiful drawing you did of me. It's hanging in my bedroom. Really? Took me like three hours to finish the shading on your upper lip. It's probably the best drawing I've ever done. Yeah, it's really nice. Yeah, well, I'll probably pick you up at six o'clock for the dance. Is that okay? That's fine. Okay, bye. Bye. And then she hangs up, clearly disgusted that she has to do this. Pedro asks who was on the phone, and Napoleon says, My woman that I'm taking to the dance? Now Pedro wants to know what he's going to wear, and Napoleon says, just a silk shirt or something. Pedro says that he should really have a suit. So they go to the thrift store, and they find a tan suit that Napoleon thinks is incredible. He seems like his breath has been taken by this suit whenever he encounters it. And then we get a nice shot of him strutting down the street, wearing the suit, holding a corsage in his hand. And I think he looks pretty cool. I like the suit. Finally, he needs to get his ride to Trisha's house. And so he goes home to ask Uncle Rico for a ride. Uncle Rico says that he has a sale he has to make in Benida. And so he can't take him. Napoleon convinces Uncle Rico to take him on the sale and then drop him off afterwards and then to pick up Trisha as well. So they head out. Napoleon's waiting in the van. Uncle Rico is inside making the sale and he has not come back yet. It's now 540 and Napoleon has to be at the dance at six o'clock. So time is running short. Eventually, he decides to run down the road, like he's going to run there, just straight there himself. He checks his watch again. It's 5.54. There's no way he's going to make it. But luckily, at this exact moment, a car comes driving down the road. This is a really cool car. It's red. It has hydraulics built into it and everything, so it can go up and down. It's like a, like a low rider type of situation. And there are these two really tough-looking dudes in the car. Turns out, they are Pedro's cousins. So now we get a really awesome shot of Napoleon sitting in between these two real tough guys driving down the road. And they are on their way to Trisha's house. When they get there, Trisha's dad seems a little bit concerned about this car that is in his driveway. But in the next shot, we see Trisha sitting there in the car and they are all on their way to the dance. Now, this is going to end my part of the narration. Paul's going to pick up after this. But we have a lot to talk about. The first thing I need to say, I did some deep research here, too. Whenever Uncle Rico says that his sale is in Benida, I actually looked up that town. 
that town is roughly 12 miles away from Preston. And according to Google Maps, it is a 13-minute drive between these two towns. So when Napoleon leaves the van and starts running back toward town, he has a 12-mile run ahead of him before he even would get there. Excellently done, sir. I'd expect nothing less. It's obvious the subtitles are wrong. The subtitles on the DVD say Bonita, but it's Bonita. And I looked this up. There is no Bonita in Idaho. There is a Bonita, which is right by Preston. So that's clearly the town that they were talking about. But the, and he, that's what he says too. If you listen to Uncle Rico, he says Bonita, but they messed it up on the subtitles on the actual DVD. I think it's because when they saw Napoleon's suit, they were thinking Bonita, muy guapo, right? <laughs> very <laughs> handsome. Yes. How clutch is that? Is that timing here from the cousins? Because that was like a really tense scene for me, where I was just I was getting nervous for him. I was feeling a lot of the suspense, and then boom, here come the cousins. It's nice to know that information about how insanely long he was going to run, but it's clear just Napoleon in general, the physical humor of him running. And you can just see it's clearly this long dirt road, even just what they show on the screen. It doesn't seem like he'd be able to make it in time. Not even close. (laughs) And it seems here, this is probably the first time it seems like uncle Rico's probably like a gigolo of some sort. Like it seems like he's not just selling Tupperware, right? I mean, it's definitely a little something more with all these older ladies. Trish's mom, it seems like that's probably the motivation for Trish going to the dance with Napoleon is that she really likes Uncle Rico. I mean, he is a suave, good looking man, so it's not shocking. And plus, he's still in this like high school phase where he feels super youthful and whatnot. So I definitely started getting those vibes from Uncle Rico that maybe he's selling a little bit more than just the uh, the Tupperware and the ship. Oh, yeah. And he's going to be selling something more a little bit later. So, you know, we'll, we'll hold on for that reveal. So I've got to ask you here, we've talked about this before, but sort of the main overarching thing here in this section of the movie is Pedro and Napoleon asking girls out, trying to get people to go to the dance. And then Trisha is in this situation where she is forced to take Napoleon. Now, I know from talking to you before that you've been in situations where You agreed to go to dances with people because you essentially felt obligated. So, I mean, we've mentioned that in other podcasts, but were you having flashbacks here? Did you empathize with Trisha where she is having a hard time stomaching the situation? Thankfully, it was nothing that bad in terms of going with the dance, although there are things in the dance that I want to talk about that I remembered, Um, things that we talked about with Harvey Harvey's inability to say no in the Sabrina episode here. It was more just asking girls out to the dance. It's only happened one time. And it was a girl that I really liked at the time. And I just called her up on the phone. I thought it was a for sure guaranteed deal asking her to homecoming, then finding out that she had a boyfriend at the time. And so my heart was just shattered in that moment. (laughs) So that was my high school experience. And I just remember coming into school and just like so sad and despondent, just wasn't talking and everyone around my lunch table was super kind, just trying to cheer me up and hey, you'll, you'll be okay. You'll get over this. And it did, you know, I obviously did get over it, but yeah, that was, that was my one experience of asking a girl to a dance and <sighs> dances in general, man, just, just pretty bad. And unfortunately at the time it was not just her going to the dance. I actually kind of went through her best friend to see if she was okay with it. And her best friend was basically like, yeah, it's cool. And we were going to double date 
with another friend I had in high school. And so I connected him with her best friend and we were going to go together as a group. And so I told him, I was like, listen, man, she has a boyfriend. She said, no. So unfortunately we're not doing the homecoming. And he's like, what are you talking about? And I said, well, we're, we can't go as a group. I, I was the reason we would go in the first place. And you were kind of just going to be there with her best friend, but that's not going to happen. So it's not going to happen. And he was, he was so mad at me that I got rejected. So he couldn't then go. He had no compassion whatsoever for me getting turned down. He wasn't saying, Oh, Paul, I feel bad for you. Oh, Paul, I can't believe this happened. I'm sorry, man. He was upset that he couldn't go to homecoming with the girl who I like's best friend. And I was just, I, my mind was blown and needless to say, things did not go over well between us after that. How does the best friend not know that she has a boyfriend? These were like, very good that, questions. How does that even happen? No, that makes no sense. No clue. I was blindsided. Wow. And maybe she made it up to kind of get out of it. That's a possibility, I guess. It's just an excuse. But either way, that's, devastation. That's rough. that's rough, dude. I So here's one weird thing about this. Whenever I was watching this Napoleon uh, for the first time, I mentioned I was with a group of friends. I actually had just asked a girl out to the snowball, the winter formal. Okay. And so she was normally part of the group that would be watching this movie, but she wasn't there because she had to go and like get her dress and stuff. And so I was watching this whole thing about this dance and this whole situation, like as it was literally happening to me. The girl basically ghosted me as soon as we got to the dance. Like she seemed happy when I asked her and like, it wasn't even like a thing where it was like, oh, like I, I called her up and, and like, you know, her mom made her like, literally I just asked her at school and she agreed. Like, so it wasn't like there was some big drama surrounding it, but then like we get to the dance and like, she won't dance at all. She's like off with her friends the whole time. So it was just it was insane. I don't even know, but I definitely felt a lot of the vibe of like what Napoleon has to deal with here. Kind of felt that a little bit, you know, I had made a connection there. Well, I also went to an all boys school. So the pressure was a lot less. You could get kind of get away with it because obviously no one at school would know if I was going to someone else's homecoming or, I mean, I guess, you know, we technically had a homecoming that people would know, but obviously there's a lot more, leniency with bringing a girl there because it was kind of hard to find dates. You had to go outside of our school to, they were called mixers basically, which were like dances where I guess you'd meet a girl and then ask them to the formal dance more formal dance or whatever. But man, I don't miss that at all. That's just not, not a time to be alive. No, it's not a good time. Dating in general is, is like just a rough proposition. And then especially when you're in high school, so hard Anyway, I, I do have to say, regarding the scene where they're making their sales, apparently when Kip runs over the Tupperware, the crew wasn't really sure what was going to happen when he did that. And so they were sort of like taking bets as to what was going to occur, like when he tried to run it over. And Kip himself, the actor, didn't know. And so I guess whenever it explodes and he just says, dang it, and then drives away, he just ad-libbed all of that because it wasn't really in the script that it was going to explode like that. So that was a fun little moment. So another big thing with Kip is in the scene where he's having his back and forth with Uncle Rico about 
where they're going to go to sell their products. They have this, again, this was ad-libbed, this whole thing, where Uncle Rico asks Kip if he spends you know all this time in these chat rooms and does Grandma have to pay for that by the minute like he's on the phone? And Kip is like, Grandma gets pretty TO'd with me sometimes because... You know, she's still paying by the minute, and sometimes I'm in the chat for three or four hours. And then Uncle Rico says, if it was me, I'd throw you out the window. And so that whole little talk is very much like a snapshot in time of when we used to pay by the minute. So I know you wanted to bring up some more about that. What were your thoughts there? Well, this was not in high school because in high school, I just didn't have a cell phone. So everything was done by landline. But in college, I did still landline too, right? Because like even landline stuff was by the minute back then. True, true. Or or if you called someone like after like after like seven or whatever, it was free. Like you got free minutes. So even with landlines, you're dealing with that. Well, I never had to deal with managing that. So (laughs) that's something my parents (laughs) would be able to speak to more. But thankfully, I mean, at that time, I wasn't using the landline, talking all the time. But in college, I ended up getting a track phone, which literally was like a preloaded thing. And my parents would give me like, oh, 150 minutes. And that was all I had for basically a semester and whatnot. And then every minute you're on the phone, that's a minute. And then text messages was like 0.3 of a minute. So like I guess around three text messages per minute. And man, when I met my wife in college, I just... I can't even describe the amount of texts we sent back and forth to each other. And I just went over. I was like, forget it. I'm just going to keep doing it. See what happens. I racked up hundreds and hundreds of dollars in overages doing that. (laughs) And my mom was cool about it. I guess she knew, Hey, this, you know, this girl's obviously special to him. So I'll just, I'll just pay it. But it just reminded me of that, of trying to, meticulously say, oh, I only got a few more texts left for the month. And then just saying, yeah, forget it. I'll just deal with the ramifications. But I had no money to pay for it, and she was good about it. So, Wow, your mom is clutch right there. I mean, I had the same thing you did. I had the track phone, 0.3 minutes for a text. Yeah, same exact thing. In college, that was always a balancing act. I was never a big texting guy, so I never really went over on that. But as soon as I got out of college and I got my first job because, you know, you went to grad school afterwards for law school. So you were still like not really working at the time. In my case, I went out of college right away and got my first teaching job. So I got a smartphone finally, like after that, which was probably in 2009 at that point. So if we're talking Napoleon, this is five years prior And so I'm in high school, like I don't even have even a track phone yet at this point. So, I mean, I'm not even part of the conversation at that point. So when he left off, they were heading to the dance. And so we cut to the dance with the song Forever Young playing. And this is basically a very standard high school dance. Pretty much what I remember. It's got lights like a disco ball kind of rotating around a gymnasium slash theater type setup. You have really cheap decorations like stars just kind of plastered on the brick walls and everything. And then you have the metal chairs placed out where you could just kind of sit down. And as soon as Napoleon and Trish make it to the dance, they immediately head to the chairs and sit down. Neither one wants to dance with the other one. Trish ends up seeing Don and Summer, her friends purportedly, and they invite her to come over and hang out. Napoleon then waves to Pedro and Deb who are dancing together, but they don't see Napoleon whatsoever. 
Napoleon then asks Trish if she wants to dance near Pedro, but Trish ends up peacing out. Napoleon then goes to blow his nose in the bathroom, and he takes out something from his pocket to eat. It looks like tater tots to me, but I couldn't really see. He then leaves the bathroom and goes back out, and he walks up to Pedro, and they start speaking together. Napoleon, when did you get here? Just a couple minutes ago. Have you guys seen Trisha anywhere? No. She probably just went to the bathroom. You guys having a killer time? Yes. They then awkwardly kind of stand there, and then Pedro offers Deb to dance with Napoleon if Trish had left. So Pedro heads out, and Napoleon and Deb begin to dance together. Napoleon notes that... I like your sleeves. They're real big. Thank you. I made them myself. So you and Pedro are getting really serious now? No. We're just friends. Huh. Napoleon then asks how Deb's glamour shots are going, to which Deb says, good. Deb then invites Napoleon to come over for a personal portrait, and Napoleon agrees. It seems love is in the air between these two. They're doing a slow dance again as Napoleon ends up hitting his hair on a star hanging from the ceiling. There's a lot going on here. This is a pivotal scene uh, as we have Deb and Napoleon dancing together for the first time here. I will say that in the bathroom, I could not see what he had either, but in the commentary, apparently a lot of people think that he has like actual like tobacco chew that he's taking out of a pouch. It is not. It is actually big league chew. And according to John Heater, it is grape flavored. So that's what happens there. That is so epic. Dude, Big League Chew, huge for me. Grape flavor is my favorite kind of flavor of Big League Chew. It's honestly just great gum. I mean, you could just roll it up, get a ton of gum. It's got so much flavor. I mean, you, you could just feel the cavities forming in your teeth. <laughs> and the flavor kind of stays around for a long time. I mean, typically, I played a lot of baseball growing up. You typically go actually with sunflower seeds. That was kind of the go-to. But as an adult, man, anytime I get Beagle Chew, especially if it comes in like one of my kids' Halloween candy baskets, I'm, I'm trying to snag that as quickly as I can. I was glad to know what it was. The, like the commentary really does help out with some of these little details. You've got some good music here, Forever Young. Uh, you also have Time After Time. That's what plays whenever Napoleon and Deb are actually dancing together, Time After Time. And that whole conversation... This is one of my favorite quotes in the movie when Napoleon says, I like your sleeves. They're real big. Apparently that quote is a real quote. It is from Jared Hess's wife, a story that she told him that apparently she went to a dance with a guy in school and he said that he liked her sleeves because they were real big. And in this scene, Deb actually says, that she made them herself. So I like that little uh, addition there as well. Yeah, this is a very classic high school gym type situation. And everyone's dancing very respectfully. If you've been to a high school dance, I've not seen it like this, uh, where everyone's keeping distance and they've got their arms out and they're not really even touching. It's it's a very um, PG, uh, G even uh, rated dance that we see here in Napoleon, but I, I love it. It really fits. The atmosphere is great. 
And overall, I think this is one of the best scenes in the movie. It's definitely one of the scenes where you can argue, and I actually wrote this down in my notes here, that there is a type, a a sort of type of plot here where, because this is like a pivotal event where we finally get to the dance and Napoleon and Deb get together here at the dance. Deb asks him over to her house so we, we, you know, th- there's some stuff happening here. So I-, I like to see that a little bit. Yeah, you get some interconnected storylines now, where it's kind of making sense. You know, some connections, friendships, romances, really blossoming here. This was pretty much my homecoming dance experience that we had talked about before on the Sabrina episode, except it was kind of in reverse because the, the girl had asked me and then abandoned me in the bathroom with her friends. So I was kind of just left there alone. <laughs> so slightly- so that's what happened to me at the snowball, except I was the one that asked her, but same outcome. Yeah, it seems like this is just a common theme that people go to dances without wanting to go to dances with people and then abandon each other. Just a miserable experience. To me, this seems actually really interesting. I'm glad you said that it's one of your favorites, if not your favorite, totally, because typically with these types of scenes, there's like tons of emotional X, Y, or Z because it's just so much emotion. You know, someone leaving someone else, dancing with another person, jealousy, all these different types of elements. This is a typical thing you see with these high school dance scenes, just a lot of emotion. And this is the opposite. Everything's deadpan. No one really cares about anything. I mean, you have Napoleon not dancing with Trish, Trish leaving Napoleon for her friends, Napoleon dancing with Pedro's date, and it's completely deadpan. Everything is just chaotic, but yet no one cares. But yet it all makes sense because Napoleon doesn't want to dance with Trish. He really didn't want to go. She was just kind of second fiddle because he wanted to go with Dev and couldn't because Pedro was going. And, you know, she's there without, she doesn't want to be there with Napoleon because she's there for her mom. Pedro really didn't want to go to Deb. He had originally asked Summer to go. And for all I know, it was really just a power move from Pedro to fit in more than any actual romance because he's just has no problem letting Napoleon dance with Deb. And so it's like every character ultimately at this end scene where they're dancing under the star here, they all kind of get what they want. Right. And so there's no reason to be sad, but the entire scene really is just a complete reversal of what the beginning was like. And so it's like everyone was sad going in, then chaos happens and everyone's now happy. That's the kind of vibe I got from the scene. It was really kind of brilliant how it was put together. Oh, yeah, there's some great writing here. That, that's the thing. And this is also, you mentioned people getting what they wanted. Pedro here, I think, actually sees what he actually covets, which is the class presidency. Because when he goes out of the dance, he's at the water fountain, and he looks up and he sees this sign that says that there's class elections. And so that's the thing that he really ends up going after. Yeah, so as you said, right after this, the next scene is Pedro going to the water fountain to see the president sign where he's going to run for an election. He smirks at the side. This is the first time Pedro is like lighting up. So it's like, I'm, I'm glad you had said that because it honestly makes more sense to connect with what I was saying about the dance here. That is Pedro's thing that he wanted. We then cut to Pedro, who's kind of just wondering if people are going to vote for him. And Napoleon's sitting with him on a step. And of course, Napoleon's supporting him. I'd vote for you. Like, what are my skills? Well, you have a sweet bike, and you're really good at hooking up with chicks. Plus, you're like the only guy at school who has a mustache. That's true. Pedro says, that's true. Actually agreeing with Napoleon's Napoleon's assessment here. (laughs) Napoleon then offers his skills to help Pedro be elected. 
and then maybe he can be a bodyguard or a secret service captain if Pedro ends up winning. We then cut to Kip and Napoleon back at the home. Napoleon's checking out this strange machine on the kitchen table, and Kip warns Napoleon about touching it since it's Uncle Rico's. Don't touch it, it's Uncle Rico's. What's it for? It's a time machine, Napoleon. We bought it online. You're right. It works, Napoleon. You don't even know. Have you guys tried it yet? No. The time machine itself, it seems pretty easy to use. It's a small metal box. It has a on-off sign. It has a high-low meter. And you can input in the desired year with one of those little turn things. It's currently on year 1982 as the desired year. There's even a manual in there with instructions of how to use it. And so Napoleon decides to try it out. And basically there's a apparatus that goes around his head. It's like some metal apparatus. It's like a pogo stick that he puts in between his legs to use it. And then Kip turns it on and then zaps Napoleon. Basically gets electrocuted after putting on these crystals. He ends up getting electrocuted and it doesn't work. At this moment, Uncle Rico comes in and he says, well, I could have told you that. This, this is a brilliant scene. I mean, this is like, this is, this is not so good. And, and so this thing that they have, this time machine they have, um, my dad uh, is a ham radio operator, which means that he talks over radio and he knows how to do Morse code and stuff like that. This looks like one of those machines that he would have down in the basement. It's like this really old radio technology type stuff that's probably like 30 40 years old and it's like it's just so obvious that it's fake but it's great because like they bought it online there's an instruction manual that comes with it there are even these crystals that go into the top in fact napoleon when he turns it on he's like hold on he's like i forgot i forgot to put in the crystals and then he, he puts them into this little holder that's on top it's such a like an elaborate scam And it kind of reminds me of when I was scammed. So we were in the early days of the podcast trying to find ways to do advertising. And let's just say there was this sort of Instagram account that said, you promote on here, pay X amount of money, you get like hundreds of thousands of views or whatever it was on your ad. And I paid them, it was either 50 or 70 bucks. I don't even remember now. And it was a total sham. Like, nothing really worked or happened. We got no actual listens. Just totally got punked by this this account. So I wanted to ask you, because in the next scene, maybe not the next scene, but a bit later, Uncle Rico informs us that he sent a an email to this guy that he was going to contact the authorities if he didn't get a refund in full. So what, what are the legal ramifications of this sort of scam here that uncle Rico has fallen victim to? You probably have to contact your specialized unit or whatever and report them. And, you know, they would do an investigation and whatnot. And then they could you know file some criminal charges if they wanted to, but typically, you know, don't buy from random people. You know, I too was scammed on eBay. I remember before my honeymoon, I wanted to learn Italian. And so I wanted to buy Rosetta stone and it was, I mean, it's it's in the hundreds of dollars to buy. And then for whatever reason on eBay, it just popped up really cheap. And I forget exactly how much, but it was like 50 bucks. So we're talking maybe like 80% off the amount. And I just snap bought it. I said, oh, this is awesome. I'm going to buy it. There's a guarantee. 
total scam. I mean, the, you know, I reported the account got banned or whatever. They gave me a refund, which is pretty cool as well. But the guy actually sent me a disc, like the scammer sent me a disc. It was basically a blank disc and I got it from him. I had no idea what it was. I never opened it. I, I never put it in to see. I had no idea if it was a copy of Rosetta Stone. Could have been. It could have been a virus. It could have been who knows what. But Dude, I, you know what it, you know what it is. It's the ring. It could have been it's the ring. That's he's he was trying to pass it on to you. That's what it was because you've got to pass it on before it gets you. So that's probably what happened. I, <laughs> Rosetta Stone is super expensive because I've looked into language learning. I've done Italian on and off for many years and you need some sweet moolah. If you want to get Rosetta stone, you'd probably have to sell several 32 piece sets in order to afford that. So I don't blame you going for the, the $50. Uh, I mean, I probably would have fallen for it too. I just think it's funny. He actually sent the disc. Like it probably was Rosetta stone. He's doing me a solid. He's like, come on, man. And you reported me and wanted a refund. And I was, I was hooking you up. So he's probably upset. No, man, don't play that disc. I'm convinced it's the ring. Just don't even do it. No, it's gone now. Thankfully. So hopefully, hopefully no one dumpster dough for it. Right. (laughs) Well, that's their problem now. So, okay. So you are the resident lawyer for anyone who hasn't, uh, been, you know, maybe this is your first episode. We often will go to Paul for legal advice here. And so now we know uh, about the scams. Yeah, they usually have a specialized division in your local area. So just look it up, submit it. You'd be good to go. Going back a little bit, because I, I had written my notes to include Pedro seeing the sign here for president at this part of the narration. So I wanted to talk about this right now. I got to say, I can connect with the story because I, too, had political ambitions. I ran for vice president in elementary school when I was in junior high, along with the president. So he had a whole ticket and we had posters and everything all around school. My slogan was vote for Paul. He'll give his all. (laughs) How how do you lose with a slogan like that? Can't beat that whatsoever. Didn't have the t-shirts or not. Didn't have the t-shirts, but nevertheless, great campaign here. Can't lose. My big campaign promise, I had to give a speech in front of the whole school. I had promised to install soccer goals <laughs> in our little back area. So that was my big campaign promise here. And I guess this is kind of also an Uncle Rico moment for me because aside from the posters we had put up, we were basically going to bribe kids to win. My biggest political rival was actually giving out buttons that had her stuff on it and whatnot. And Wait a second. Did, did you go to school with... Summer Wheatley also gives out buttons. So, I mean, sounds similar to me. Definitely similar type vibes. Definitely similar type vibes. And yeah, I just wasn't, uh, didn't think of the buttons, but instead I just went for hardcore candy. Now, these were the best at the time. These Jolly Rancher Chews, super expensive at that time. I love them. Did you ever try any of those? Oh, yeah, that's bougie, man. I mean, that's that's top tier. Cost us a ton of money. We had literature saying vote for us. And we were going to go to each class and basically give a little speech, hand it out and bribe them. I don't know if we got the date wrong or the timing wrong or whatever. I'm not entirely sure, but we showed up with all of this stuff and it was the morning of the election. <laughs> and oh. so we couldn't give out the candy to anybody. And it's it, it was terrible because we came pretty close to winning. And so it's like, I know for sure if we had given out that candy, we would have won. And I guess the only consolation prize is I had a ton of these Jolly Rancher chews I was just able to eat. And I also didn't have any responsibility. So I guess it wasn't a terrible loss. But that's also, that might be another Uncle Rico moment I had. 
It could be. It might have changed your entire life trajectory as far as we know. That's amazing. You know what? It's kind of like how we will see later in the movie that, that Pedro doesn't know that he's supposed to do a skit with his speech. It's kind of like that. So, I mean, unfortunately, you didn't have a Napoleon moment uh, to salvage the situation, but it sounds like you would have won that election, man. You were robbed. That's all I can say. We cut to Uncle Rico shopping with Napoleon at a drugstore. Uncle Rico yells at Napoleon for getting the 24-pack of markers instead of the 12-pack of markers. He then goes to the checkout where Summer is working as a cashier. And then Uncle Rico, in line, yells at Napoleon. You know we can't afford the fun pack. What do you think, money grows on trees in this family? Take it back. Get some pampers for you and your brother while you're at it. Summer is loving this, and so is Uncle Rico. We then cut to Napoleon drinking milk out of a mason jar. It seems like a competition of some sort for the FFA. He's able to taste everything about the milk and point out various components and defects within the milk. And he's being judged, correct or incorrect. The defect in that one is bleach. That's correct. Yes. In the second batch of milk, he says that the cow got into an onion patch. And he was correct on that as well. We then cut to Pedro. He's also doing some sort of a competition with this organization, but he judges cows. And he notices that the cow in front of him has a fifth nipple instead of four in front of him. So real quick about Summer in the thrift store. I'm a little surprised that Summer is even working in the thrift store since she seems to be like the royalty here in the town. Typically with the FFA stuff, you know, I don't know a ton about this, like and what the real competitions actually are. But according to the commentary, I think this is a real thing, like the uh, the milk thing and the cow, because Jared Hess tells us that the two judges are actually his dad and his grandfather. And evidently, these are all real competitions. So I thought that was pretty cool, especially that he stuck his family in there, uh, got them in. In the thrift store, though, it's brutal how Uncle Rico calls him out about the the fun pack, how they can't afford it, and how he's going to have to mix and match like the 12 pack instead of the 24 pack. I mean, Uncle Rico's just, and he's saying it as loud as possible so everybody in the store can hear him going on about it. I mean, Uncle Rico here is clearly in high school. You know, he's trying to, seems like he's trying to get points um, in, in Summer's eyes for some reason and insult the nerd Napoleon, like he's literally in high school. I mean, that just seemed like that's what this was about. It's obvious, you know, the guy just bought a a time machine that didn't work spending all that money. And then he's making fun and then he's not buying markers, which again, we don't even know what the markers were for, I guess, probably for the election. I would assume maybe, I I don't know. And then the, the chips again, just another random purchase, but it just seemed like uncle Rico here, just going back to his high school days, trying to be the, the big bully here. Yeah, and he's sort of hunched over, and like, cause he still has like groin damage from the time machine. Like, so he's, he's like moving real slow, and like, he's having a rough time here. So I don't think Uncle Rico was at his best right now. Did you know like, what, what FFA stood for? I tried to look and see some kind of, you know, what the acronym actually meant. I couldn't really see on any of the signage behind the characters to kind of figure out what it was. So I know I couldn't really see it in the movie, but I know that it means future farmers of America. I'm aware of this just because where I we used to work my first job in Virginia, it was 
pretty rural. And so like the FFA was a thing. I never was interested in that myself. So I didn't know anything about it at all. I'm assuming in Idaho, it's a pretty big deal probably because just the state's very rural and agricultural. So that kind of makes sense to me. Yeah. If all you're doing is milking cows and drinking milk all day, you probably have a taste. So, Hey, why not do a competition about it? Right. Yeah, Napoleon's pretty good at it. That's one of his skills, apparently. So you can put it right up there with nunchuck skills, computer hacking skills, bow staff that he mentioned earlier. Um, you know, so that's that's one of his skills. Also got to say I'm a huge fan here of the mason jar drinking. It just took – that is my go-to cup of choice. I basically started using mason jars when I started working out because it's a really good way to mix protein powder where the protein doesn't, like, get stuck in crevices and whatnot and then kind of get all messed up. So mason jars were really good for that. And then I even started using it for basically everything. It's just they're bigger. And I put coffee in there just because you just get more coffee. You get more of whatever you want to drink. And yeah, it's just my go-to for for that. The only issue is dropping them. I drop them all the time. No, <laughs> so it's, it's kind of frustrating to try to clean them up and whatnot. I mean, I've dropped them outside, dropped them in my house. You know, Once they slip out because you got a heavy drink or whatnot, that's kind of the one downside to it. So maybe I need a slightly better alternative, but that's my go-to for cups. Can't say that I've done it myself, but more power to you. Napoleon and I just, we understand, you know, we just get it. Yeah. You guys are on the same wavelength here. FFA champions. We cut to summer handing out papers in the hallway, trying to get people to vote her for president. Pedro and Napoleon see her doing this and Pedro starts wiping his brow. He's really starting to sweat pretty badly. Do you think it's kind of warm in here? No. I think it, they have a heater on or something. It seems pretty good to me. You don't feel like your head is burning or, or anything? No. I'm going to go home and lay down. Okay, see ya. Don then comes over and tries to get Napoleon to vote for Summer. Napoleon says, no way, I'm voting for Pedro Sanchez. He then asks for one of the vote for summer buttons that Don has, and once he receives it, he immediately and awkwardly tosses it down the hallway in an act of defiance against summer. We cut to Uncle Rico and Kip at the diner, having another one of their discussions. This is the scene where Kip's wondering if there's ever going to be a refund back from the time machine, and Uncle Rico says no, but he'll contact the authorities if he doesn't. Rico, again, reflects on how cool it would be to go back in time with all of his current knowledge. He then tells Kip to find a soulmate, to which Kip says he already has. I've already got a soulmate. Oh, yeah. What's her name again? LaFonda. LaFonda. Huh. How's she doing? Well, I think I'm going to need some time off. She's flying out from Detroit for a few days. Well, what about work? Have you studied up on the new product? Yes. Well, do you know it backwards in front? Basically. Why don't you sell something to that girlfriend of yours? You might as well do something while you're doing nothing. Because she doesn't need any, that's why. We then cut to Napoleon visiting Pedro's house on the front lawn. He ended up making some drawings for the flyers that he's going to be hanging around school to vote for Pedro. He then sees Pedro sitting there with a hood over his head during summer. It's very strange to Napoleon. When he asks why Pedro has the hood on, it turns out that Pedro was trying to figure out why he was sweating so bad, why it was so hot. So I drank some cold water. 
But I didn't do nothing. So I laid in the bathtub for a while. But then I realized that it was my hair that was making my head so hot. So I went into my kitchen and I shaved it all off. I don't want anyone to see. I know what you mean. We then cut to him with Deb looking at wigs to buy for Pedro. They both like the wig that makes him look like a medieval warrior. They then both grab it at the same time and accidentally touch hands. In an awkward moment, Napoleon immediately apologizes for doing so. So this whole part with Pedro shaving his hair, for whatever reason, this is something that Jared Hess, I guess, like really had in his head because... I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but if you get the DVDs, you can see a short film that he made called Palooka, which is about eight minutes long. It's in black and white. It stars John Heater as basically as Napoleon. That's not his name yet. I think his name is Seth, but it includes a lot of the scenes that eventually became Napoleon Dynamite. So like it opens with him throwing the figure out of the bus There's also a character named Pedro in it who is played by a different actor. And there is another character who shaves his hair off and he needs a wig. And so they basically combined Pedro with this other character and made him one character. But that whole shtick of the kid shaved his head and they need to go get him a wig, it still happens in that short film. And so they they sort of bring that into this. I don't really know where the idea for that is from. I didn't get anything about that in the commentaries about like why that's a joke that he decided to do, but apparently that was something that he wanted to do from way back when he did the short film and then into Napoleon Dynamite. So for whatever reason, the head shaving arc was really important to him. I guess it does give us a good way to bring Deb back into things because they have to go to her to get the wig. But, you know, Pedro here, he's basically a synthesis of the two characters from the short film. Yeah, I might be one a little bit too hard here with this understanding, but definitely in, for sure, Napoleon and Deb being part of Pedro's journey as well, kind of combining them all together, like you said. But going first of all is to they obviously inserted in the scene with the heat to justify the cutting of the hair. And that scene in particular with Summers was pretty cool to me because first of all, you have him feeling a lot of heat and there's a lot of reasons he may have been feeling the heat, right? Number one, obviously he's just nervous about summer. He's having this big presidential election against the most popular girl in school. And so he's definitely nervous about it. Then you have obviously, you know, he asked her to a dance. So maybe he's just nervous because she's really good looking and hot, if you will. And then obviously her name Summer connects with that as well. So to give all these different connections here with why he's feeling the heat, but then the actual haircutting itself, it's kind of weird. Like what about his hair would make him sweat so much versus a wig? And that to me really came down. I saw a lot of symbolism with him cutting his hair because I think he had a very certain path going on that he was nervous He was doubting himself. And then to me, that was very symbolic that he was shaving his head and entering into this new era where he's going to become a different person. So I I thought it was very symbolic. And then obviously along that journey, he's going to have Napoleon and Deb, and he basically becomes a different person with regard to his confidence and whatnot, because he's then built up from their actions. Like his embarrassment then turns into Napoleon bringing him up 
Deb coming in. And this will be incredibly important for our end. I love it. I, I think that's the true meaning behind it. It's really good analysis. I'm down with it. Let's let's stick with that. I think it's going to pan out. The only other contrast here, again, Kip and Rico, you have Uncle Rico here who had all this money that he had earned like a responsible adult like he's supposed to be, and yet he threw it all away for a time machine. And so he's still living in the past. He's still making these irresponsible decisions. And then we have the contrast of Kip, who's deemed to be the loser, and yet he's flying a girl over to spend time with looking towards his future. And so you have that dichotomy here between the past and the future between these two characters. And the interesting thing here, like to build on what you said, is that Uncle Rico is upset when Kip says that he's going to need some time off from work. And he asks him if he knows the new product backwards and forwards. And Kip says, yeah, basically. And then Uncle Rico says, why don't you try to sell some to your girlfriend while you're sitting around doing nothing? And Kip says, because she doesn't need any. That's why. And we don't know what the product is yet, but we will find out soon. And the fact that Kip says that to Uncle Rico is actually the first time that he ever stands up to him in the entire movie. So we also get a character arc for Kip here. Now, if you're watching this for the first time, you might doubt if Kip's really bringing a girl out or not, because we don't have any evidence that she's real. All we know is that he supposedly chats with her online This could be anything. So let's wait and see if LaFonda is actually LaFonda. Cut back to the school and Pedro has his wig on. It's this brown, super bushy wig. It nearly covers his eyes with how shaggy it is. And Napoleon is wearing a vote for Pedro shirt. They go to hang the different posters around the school. And the slogan on the poster for Pedro is reach for the stars. And it basically has Pedro on a sort of flying creature way I describe it is like a dragon up until its head, which becomes then a rat. Napoleon has a very distinct drawing style that kind of reminds me of how I would draw things, but it's not very good. But again, it's passionate. Napoleon put a lot of work into doing it. We then get, dare I say, a montage of them placing different poster ads everywhere from water fountains to urinals to locker rooms, pretty much everywhere around the school. They then hand out as students are walking into school what looks like Deb's boondoggle necklaces, bracelets, etc., saying, vote for Pedro, vote for Pedro. Summer and Trish here are together, and they're not pleased seeing this. They don't like the competition here. We then cut to a scene near a locker where a bully is demanding lunch money from a nerdy kid. He starts violently shaking the nerdy kid kind of like a piggy bank until he pays him the lunch money. Napoleon sees this and hands the nerd one of these wristlets. He says, Pedro offers you his protection. The same bully later on in the scene after this goes to try to steal the bike from this nerdy kid, and Pedro's cousins roll up soon after. One simply shakes his head no, and then the bully immediately flees. (laughs) It's so good. Pedro's cousins, like, pulling up, and, like, just like the look that he gives the kid... And he just totally backs off. I love the whole Pedro offers you his protection. Like that whole line, it's because it's like a mafia type situation. Like it's just brilliant. It's like the Godfather at work here. Absolutely great. I will say during the montage, as we all know, I love a good montage. We're gonna need a montage. montage. This is a great montage. 
And the music that plays is actually the theme music from the A-Team. So pretty great because that's actually kind of what we have here. We have an A-Team of Pedro, Napoleon, and Deb and Pedro's cousins. They're going to, I guess Pedro's cousins would be Mr. T in this metaphor probably. And so essentially they're going to combine forces here for the sake of Pedro's election. Yeah, lots of character development here. We're really hitting their stride. Pedro here, he's finally actually launched his campaign. And so he's got his posters now out. He has a t-shirt. He's handing out these merchant Deb's merchandise saying, vote for Pedro. So he's all out there. Now, there's no hiding anymore. There's no escaping the fact that he's going for it. He's going hard. You've got Napoleon here demonstrating courage, standing up to the bully helping another nerdy kid out, whereas he was in that position before. He's now helping people. And then you have Deb. I mean, honestly, she's her merchandise is getting spread all around school. And so it's, it's a very strong possibility that people may be asking her, hey, what about your merchandise? Again, going shyly door to door to now the whole school is able to use her merchandise, her boondoggles. is a big step for her, in my opinion, as an entrepreneur as well. We cut to Kip. He's standing outside a bus stop. He's got this cardboard sign on that says La Fonda. So he's waiting for her to come in off the bus. They've obviously never really seen each other before because he's holding the sign. He apparently has seen her face, but if he's holding the sign, it implies she does not know what he looks like. Immediately, once LaFonda sees him, she immediately freaks out with excitement and just runs towards him. They're happy to see each other. We cut to Uncle Rico. He's driving down the street, and he stops his car next to Trish and Summer, who are just walking on the sidewalk. He hands them pamphlets. They do a close-up of the pamphlet. The girls are both looking at it. And it turns out it is a natural remedy for breast enhancement called Bust Must Plus. When Napoleon goes to his locker, it is covered with these posters. So the whole school knows about it. We cut to Kip and LaFonda sitting at a picnic table on what is their first date. Kip is feeding her a shake and she's just super in him. Everything he does, she's smiling, winking, everything. She even bought him a huge gold necklace to wear as a gift. They end up playing footsie with each other. And that ends the scene. No words were spoken the entire time. We then cut to Uncle Rico. He's driving and he freaks out because someone threw something at his windshield and it exploded everywhere. It was Napoleon with what looks like a giant melon of some sort, maybe an orange. Napoleon is upset because Uncle Rico handed out the flyers. And because of that now, he's getting teased. They end up wrestling together. Why the heck you throwing crap in my van, Napoleon? Everybody at school thinks I'm a freaking idiot because of you. You're going to clean my van right now. Get off of me, bodegget. And Napoleon wins by elbowing Uncle Rico in the stomach. Napoleon then hops a fence and flees. So I love that LaFonda is a real person because honestly, first time watching this through, you think no way is this really going to happen. And then she comes off that bus and she is just so into Kip. It is great to see them together. They play footsie underneath the picnic table Kip has his sock on and LaFonda ha- like has sandals or like her bare feet. And uh, it's just so weird to see Kip playing footsie with her with the sock on the track. The commentary, John Heater calls that moment provocative. Then I will say that again, from the commentary that it is a grapefruit that he throws at Uncle Rico's van and explodes. Uh, one of my favorite quotes here is when he elbows Uncle Rico, he says, get off of me, you bodaggit. And then he runs to the fence. And then, like you said, he he basically face plants off the fence. So, yeah, we have some conflict starting to brew here between Napoleon, 
and Uncle Rico, which will only escalate. And this really begins Kip and LaFonda's romance. And again, the whole thing, the whole scene's silly, but there are obviously there is a purpose behind it. And it's the romance. And part of a romance is you adjust and adapt to one another because you love the other person. And so here right away, Kip is feeding LaFonda with a shake. And again, in every one of these scenes with Uncle Rico, he's having a shake in the diner. So that's obviously one of his favorite drinks. So she accepts the shake. And then Kip accepts this gigantic gold necklace because LaFonda loves it. And obviously just her coming to be with him in general is a big sacrifice from her. And so you kind of get to see those dynamics. Again, it's under, it's, it's silly underlying it, but that's the reason they're doing it. And it'll just keep picking up. And this scene also really demonstrated why it's so hard to narrate this because like the whole Uncle Rico thing and even just the posters on Napoleon's locker room, just I, I wanted to cut it because I just like, how, how could this matter? But then if you don't have those components in, this fight with Uncle Rico makes no sense. So you need to have that in there. And so I actually have to have to go back and then add that in just to provide the narration because you need to have that motivation for the scene just a couple scenes later to know why Napoleon is as angry as he is. 100%. I mean, people think that this movie is just a random string of, like, gags and stuff, and it is not like that at all. It's The writing's all very interconnected throughout. I like what you said about LaFonda and, and Kip, too, because even though it seems very silly, because they look totally different, and they're just very opposites from the outside, is that clearly they're actually really in love with each other, because they met through chatting, so they're connected through their personality, is not really through their physical appearances. So to me, this is a really deep, pretty serious relationship. I mean, like Kip said earlier, things are getting pretty serious. So to me, it's it's actually, yeah, it's it's a pretty strong relationship. We then cut to a group of people in the park. They're hitting a pinata on a tree of a blonde girl, and it's with Pedro and Deb. Presumably, it's related to the election. We don't really know at the time. We then immediately cut to Napoleon at a thrift store. He finds a side there, which is like a weapon, kind of what Raphael uses in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And he also buys a video called Daquan's Dance Moves. We cut to Pedro being scolded by the principal for having this piñata. Look, Pedro, I don't know how they do things down in Juarez, but here in Idaho, we have a little something called pride. Understand? Smashing in the face of a piñata that resembles Summer Wheatley is a disgrace to you, me, and the entire gem state. We then cut to Napoleon putting the VHS of Daquan's dance moves into the player in order to learn the actual dancing. He tries closing his door, but it fails, and so we get a little peek in here. Daquan says, are you ready to get your groove on? And Napoleon says, yes. We then cut to Pedro talking with Deb. He has been punished for the piñata. He's not disqualified, but he had to take down his posters as punishment. I don't understand. He say you're not allowed to smash piñatas that look like real people. But we do it in Mexico all the time. Your hair looked great today. Thank you. We cut to Napoleon sweating like crazy trying to learn this dance, and he grabs a drink from the fridge. He turns around and he sees LaFonda sitting there. He asks who she is and what she's doing there, and she says that she's waiting for Kip and that her name is LaFonda. Napoleon explains that he's practicing his dance moves. LaFonda's kind of shocked by this, that he would 
want dance moves, and so she hands him a cassette. Here, you might like that. My cousin made it. Kip then shows up in a do-rag and all black with his big chain hanging, and they're about to head for some prime rib. Kip says that LaFonda is 100% his soulmate, and that he's sure there's one out there for Napoleon. So the part with the with him doing the dance in his room, yeah, it's the only time we see his room at all. And there's a little sign on the door that says Pegasus Crossing. Apparently, this was something that John Heater actually took from the set. Like, he actually still has. And so it was one of the things that he held on to. It's amazing the change in Kip that we see here, not just physically, but the fact that now he's fulfilled. And he's actually able to give positivity to Napoleon for, I think, the only time ever to this point in the film. Now that he has LaFonda, he's able to tell Napoleon that there's a soulmate out there for him, too. So this is a big change in the way, because up till now, their relationship has mainly been picking on each other, kind of fighting with each other, more or less. Kip seems like he's sort of a new man here. So LaFonda definitely bringing a huge change into into not just his life, but to the household in general. I love how Napoleon randomly picks up this dance cassette, like, well, the VHS, rather, uh, at the thrift store. At the same time that he also gets, like, the sigh. You never see the sigh again, but, like, the, the VHS is going to be really important. But once again, kind of with this sort of retro aesthetic... Because by 2004, a lot of people weren't using VHS anymore. But Napoleon is still rocking the VHS. I still was, because my family was always behind on technology. But it was nice to sort of see some of that old stuff. LaFonda gives him a cassette rather than a CD. So, again, I like seeing the old tech sort of make an appearance here. Yeah, this really is the finish for Kip's transformation. Not only really in his love for LaFonda, but in a way, perhaps an older brother to Napoleon, kind of giving him some encouragement that he could find his soulmate. LaFonda here playing a huge role. It not only transforms Kip into, like you said, manhood, adulthood, and being an older brother, taking responsibility, etc., but also giving Napoleon the cassette. Without her, the rest of everything else really can't happen. So she's playing a huge role here. And again, Kip's wearing a ridiculous outfit to us. It's supposed to be funny and silly. But that's the whole point, is that it's about a transformation taking place. His love for LaFonda, obviously, that's probably what she wants him to wear. And so he's wearing it to please her, and he's happier than he's ever been. I have a couple questions here on the scene. First of all, what was Napoleon's motivation to start dancing? Did they ever like establish why he wanted to go dancing? The only thing I could think of was maybe he was reflecting on the lackluster dancing with Deb at the dance, because it was just a slow dance but I didn't know if there was any other reason why Napoleon just started dancing. No, I think that's all. That's what I thought too, is that maybe it had something to do with the previous dance, but they don't really ever give a good explanation for it. Just that he's at the thrift store and he just sees the tape. So maybe he decided he needs more skills because as we know, he believes that girls only like guys who have great skills. So maybe he's trying to expand his repertoire of skills here. I'm not sure what the exact motivation is, though. I will say that when he's in his room dancing, apparently he was dancing to nothing. Like, there was no music at all. So all of the dance moves that he's doing are just made up 
with no music whatsoever on the set. Yeah, I did look up that John Heater's actually a good dancer, and so he does improv quite a bit with the dancing later on. The second question I had was with regard to this pinata. I mean, is that a cartel reference here of a political rival? Because that's, I kind of getting that. I'm also kind of getting maybe there was some kind of Mexican tradition to do that, and I just don't know about it. And so maybe it's reflecting the school's ignorance of culture. I couldn't really decide how to come on this issue. It could really be both, I think, but I I'm pretty unaware of it. It's one of those things where, you know, people use pinatas in America, like for parties and things, and people probably assume it's part of that culture, but I'm not part of that culture, so I don't really know, like, how authentic that is or not. It does kind of seem like in the movie, though, they're trying to make the point that Pedro is sort of attacking Summer as, like, a political rival, You know, so it's almost like an effigy of a person that you're trying to take down who's a political leader or something like that. So to me, that's what it's supposed to represent. I don't know how accurate that is to like real culture, but I think that in the movie, that's totally what they're going for is that it's sort of like a political activism or something like that. Yeah, we only know that Pedro's shocked that it was an issue because it was so commonly done in Mexico. Yeah, we know that he's from Juarez, or at least that's what the principal says. He says something like, I don't know how they do things down in Juarez, but in the gem state, blah, blah, blah. So uh, that's that's all I can really bring to that. We then cut to Deb in her studio where she's with Uncle Rico, and they're trying to figure out a, a proper backdrop here for a photo. He then hands her a flyer of the breast enhancement product that he's selling. You know, Deborah, you have striking features. Such a soft face should be complemented with a soft body. Mr. Rico? My friends and clients, they call me Uncle Rico. And says that Napoleon said you'd be interested. Deb seems to really take this to heart when Rico says Napoleon said that. She seems self-conscious. We then cut to Napoleon dancing in his room, and the phone rings, and so he picks it up. It's Deb. Hello? Napoleon? Yeah? Who's this? It's Deb. And I'm calling to let you know I think you're a shallow friend. What the heck are you even talking about? Don't lie, Napoleon. Your Uncle Rico made it very clear how you feel about me. What? I don't need herbal enhancers to feel good about myself. And if you're so concerned about that, why don't you try eating some yourself? Deb tells him off and then hangs up. Napoleon then goes outside angry where Uncle Rico is throwing a football around. Grandma just called and said you're supposed to go home. She didn't tell me anything. Too bad. She says she doesn't want you here when she gets back because you've been ruining everybody's lives and eating all her steak. I'm not going anywhere, Napoleon. Get off my property. It's a free country. I can do whatever I want. Napoleon then goes to call the authorities to get Uncle Rico kicked out. Of course, he actually calls Pedro instead to talk about Deb. He tells Pedro that Deb is mad at him. Pedro asks if Napoleon has anything to give her, to which Napoleon says, not unless she likes fish. Napoleon then asks if Pedro is ready with his speech. Pedro says that he has most of it down, but not all of it. Napoleon recommends that Pedro tell the student body that if he wins, their wildest dreams will come true. And then they say goodbye. So the scene with Uncle Rico and Deb is is like one of the most uncomfortable things like ever because Deb starts to get really creeped out and she says like, 
Mr. Rico and he starts like approaching, he starts like unbuttoning like his vest and he like pulls out the flyer and it's just like super creepy. This is definitely Uncle Rico's low point here in the film. I will say too that I like her quote because Deb, when she's trying to come up with something for his shoot, she says, I could wrap you in some foam or something billowy. The line about Grandma not wanting him there, where where Napoleon says, she says she doesn't want you here when she gets back because you've been ruining everybody's lives and eating all of our steak. That line, uh, according to John Heater, was his favorite line when he read the script because he thought it was funny that eating all of their steak seemed like it was more vital than that that he was ruining everybody's lives. So that's pretty great. There was apparently another montage that was cut out of the film that would have explained more about the fish. I guess they went fishing during this montage, and that's why Napoleon says that that line about not unless she likes fish. And then later on, like when he gets the bus in the next scene, he's holding something in tinfoil, which is actually the fish. And then later on, at the end of the movie, he says... I caught you a delicious bass. And so that's a reference back to the fish again. So that's a little thread that was sort of lost in the film, but that's what it's all supposed to refer to. Well, I appreciate that because I had no idea what this fish was about and for it to tie back in still didn't really make any sense. So I'm glad you provided some context for that. Yeah. For me, this scene was just mostly about Deb's feelings towards Napoleon. I think things are escalating here where it's pretty clear. They, they care deeply about each other and then obviously, you know, we're leading into the, the climax here of the film. We cut to Napoleon. He's getting on the school bus outside his home. He walks onto the bus with a cassette Walkman on. So it's very possible that he's listening to LaFonda's cousin's tape here. We cut to Uncle Rico selling this product to a woman bodybuilder. It's none other than Starla, Rex's wife. Would you like to read her testimonial right there? Sure. Um, after using Bus Must Plus. I have such big bosoms. I don't feel comfortable reading this. Oh, that's fine. That's fine. But do you feel comfortable with me? Rex comes in and he flips out and he ends up starting to fight Uncle Rico and he just beats him up. We cut to the school auditorium where people are giving speeches for the presidential election. Summer's first up. I would be a great class president because I promise to put two new pop machines in the cafeteria. And I'm also going to get a glitter Bonnie Bell dispenser for all the girls' bathrooms. Oh, we're going to get new cheerleading uniforms. Anyway, I think I'd be a great class president. So uh, who wants to eat chimney changas next year? Not me. See, with me, it will be summer all year long. Actually a great tagline, but definitely not as good as mine. At this point, Summer goes to perform a skit. It's at this point that Pedro learns for the first time that he is supposed to also perform a skit after a speech. He has not planned one. We hear the song Larger Than Life from the Backstreet Boys playing, and Summer has a whole pseudo dance plan. It's really reminiscent of the Happy Hands Club scene where they're using, it seems like a sign language, where it seems like it's sign language trying to do a pseudo dance to the song. That's her skit. Pedro is distraught again. He's off the stage behind the curtain here. And he says he didn't want to be president anyway before he goes on. Napoleon tells Pedro simply to listen to his heart because that's what Napoleon does. Pedro goes out to give his speech at the podium. I don't have much to say. 
but I think it would be good to have some Holy Santos part of the high school to guard the hallway and to bring us good luck. El Santo Nino de Atocha is a good one. My Aunt Concha has seen him. And that if they vote for him, all their wildest dreams will come true. Pedro walks off without doing a skit, but the principal goes up to the podium and announces that he will be doing one. So there's this awkward moment where Pedro's not coming out for his skit. Napoleon then decides to take the stage himself. He had previously given a cassette to the person running the sound booth, and he's ready with a dance. Canned Heat begins to play. It's sort of this cool disco funk song. We'll put it in for the episode, obviously. And he has this whole thing choreographed with some pretty awesome moves. He's very impressive and coordinated. Unfortunately, the song stops prior to the end of his dance, and so he's kind of left there without a song dancing. Once he realizes this, he feels embarrassed and then rushes off stage. After a bit of awkward silence, everyone cheers emphatically for him, loving what he had done. They loved his dance. It then turns into a standing ovation. We then see Pedro smiling off stage, and you can kind of see tears welling up in his eyes. Love the scene in Rex's house, just because Uncle Rico gets his comeuppance finally. Moving over to the school, the teacher that's behind the curtain on the stage that tells Pedro he was supposed to have a skit is apparently Jared Hess's actual English and theater teacher who works at that high school. The part about Summer's tagline, I thought that was a pretty good one, Summer all year long, but apparently it's no match for the Holy Santos, because as we see here, I I love how Pedro, he claims that his aunt has seen one of the, like, has seen a saint. He's like, El Santo Nino de Atocha is a good one. My Aunt Concha has seen him. And I thought that was fantastic that he has this aunt who apparently like claims to have actually seen a saint. The dance, the big dance, though. Whew. On the commentary, John Heater says that they only had one roll of film left whenever they shot the scene. So he just let it all go here. And he freestyled the entire dance. Apparently there was no choreography at all. Uh, He said a lot of the moves. At one point at the beginning, it was Michael Jackson. He said there was some Backstreet Boys in there, some Saturday Night Fever. I see some spirit fingers happening. We've got Michael Jackson again. At one point, it looks like he's throwing energy balls like in Street Fighter. And then we get some Soul Train at the end. So overall, he's just drawing from all these different influences, which I thought was amazing that he was able to do that. And of course, I love the sort of revolution of the outcasts of the school, of everyone who is not Summer or Trisha, and how they just erupt in applause. It's a really feel-good type of moment. I do love how during Summer's performance, Dawn is just acting as we would say in Pittsburgh, like a jag off the whole time. Like he's sitting there in the audience, like with like sort of pulling on his t-shirt, like, Oh, it's so hot in here. Like while summer is performing and he's just like mugging for the camera the whole time. And like nobody else in the entire audience is reacting. You just see Dawn there just like hamming it up the whole time. So pretty funny. Yeah. I obviously remember the dance. Cause that was, probably the biggest thing that came out for the movie, especially in gifts and whatnot. That's crazy that he just improvised that. And this was like a Sundance film movie, right? Like they probably had a limited budget. So last camera roll, 
can't probably afford anything more to do reshoots, can't afford a choreographer. And so yeah. but that, that ends up being the highlight of the movie. How wild is that? Yeah, it wasn't picked up by a major studio, Fox, I believe, until after it premiered. So that's why the theatrical release was half a year later than the Sundance premiere. So, yeah, I don't think they had the biggest budget. I'll say, although I remember the dance, I did not remember the audience reaction. And I got such insane chills from that. That was so rewarding. I'm glad I forgot about that because that just hits so hard with everyone cheering for him. And you just know, like, Napoleon's left. Who knows what he hears or doesn't hear. But just seeing him get that recognition from them just being deadpan right after it because they were just mesmerized by the performance to then just be, oof. I mean, how awesome is that? And I know that dance was pretty popular. I could imagine other kids probably did the same thing for different talent shows and whatnot. It probably inspired a lot of nerds to kind of come out of their shell and do that. And that would have been a cool thing to do. Like it became cool to do the Napoleon Dynamite dance. I do have to just quickly mention Summer Wheatley with the Backstreet Boys for her performance. I mean, you didn't remember that, I assume. Were you surprised to hear Backstreet come in? Of course, of course. It was <laughs> it was very random, very random. And especially with the dance that came out, just did, again, summer, it is what it is. But uh, you know, if not for her, I feel like she should have won with the larger than life. But it took Pedro, a very special person, to be able to dethrone larger than life. It took that type of dance to do it. <laughs> And I don't know how you felt. I mean, I immediately thought of, because I know you loved the Wednesday's dance. I mean, it seemed like that was kind of the same type of vibe where there's this like dance. It seems to be improvised. I don't know what Jenny Ortega did for the Wednesday show, but it kind of seemed like similar vibes. You know, that audience might not have even known about the movie or this dance. I'm not sure if she was influenced by it at all or kind of that whole thing. But that immediately thought about Wednesday because I know you love that dance in particular from the Netflix show. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that uh, Jenna Ortega did choreograph it herself. I don't know how much she practiced it ahead of time. She takes a lot of cues from other dances like he does here and kind of strings them together a little bit. They're very different dances in the sense that the Wednesday dance is sort of this creepy, gothy type of, you know, gothic sort of vibe. Whereas this one is like all just pure energy and like enthusiasm, but I agree that they're very similar in that they're sort of put together in a similar way or they're sort of drawing from other influences and they're meant to seem in the moment very impromptu. Um, I I feel like uh, John Heater's approach was a bit more impromptu than hers, but I, I don't know how much she actually practiced that dance. I know she did come up with it herself. So Uh, Overall, yeah, I see the connection for sure. And it's for most people, this is the most memorable part of the movie is the dance. Like you said, it it sort of blew up after this and was a big thing. So uh, it, it was sort of a big cultural touchstone, I would say. In both those situations, both with Wednesday and obviously Napoleon, their dances come from people you wouldn't expect. And so as a nerd, none of us know how to dance by and large. And so to see a nerd or an outcast be able to dance. And we, again, we talked a lot about that in the spring episode about how dancing is a very cool thing, but only the cool kids know how to do it pretty much. And it's just this weird tradition. So to see a nerd or an outcast be able to do it and get that adulation, it's inspirational and it always, it's always a feel good thing. So that's really the connection here is you would never expect Napoleon to be busting this out. It just kind of blows your mind 
And again, we talked about the physical humor. He has no coordination at all. So for this to happen is pretty sensational. No, and the writing is great, the way they tied it together with LaFonda giving him the cassette and him having it with him so he can give it to the guy in the sound booth. And yeah, it was just all really great. I I love it. So after this, we cut to Napoleon walking home alone and then to Kip leaving with LaFonda on the bus. And Napoleon sees Kip with LaFonda. And we had talked before about Napoleon's deadpan face. This is the first time it seems like he's got a little smile there. And so he seems to be happy here. We then cut to grandma being back at the home. Uncle Rico has his arm in a sling. Obviously, Rex must have broken it in some capacity. He's now practicing throwing the ball with his left hand to even worse results, if that's possible. Uncle Rico then sees a woman riding up on a bike. Rico sees her and he's happy and smiling. They seem to know each other. We then cut to a family picnic area with a birthday cake, but it's celebrating Pedro's victory in the election. So he's with his whole family here. They're celebrating the victory. He has defeated Summer Wheatley, and he is now president. Finally, we cut to Napoleon playing tetherball in the playground, and then Deb shows up. Napoleon says that he caught her a delicious bass. Napoleon asks her to play with him, and she agrees. And that ends our movie into the credits as we zoom out with Napoleon and Deb playing tetherball together. This is a really nice how they just sort of quickly tie everything together. Um, one thing that a lot of people miss is that the, the woman that shows up at Uncle Rico's is his ex that he mentioned in the conversation with Kip earlier that he said was jealous because he was caught up in 82. So that I think her name's Tammy. So that's his ex that's like coming back to him in that scene. The woman, though, is actually the actor Kip's real-life wife. With Napoleon and Deb at the end, uh, we have the song The Promise that plays, and it's really sentimental. It's really great. Uh, It talks about needing a friend and that sort of thing. Um, Even though Napoleon and Deb clearly have romantic feelings, they're still pretty young, they're still in high school, So they still have this sort of nurturing, like, to do with their relationship. They sort of have started it. They're building it. It's nice to see it moving forward with Deb playing him in Tetherball, which Summer refused to do earlier in the film. So we have Deb stepping in here as Napoleon's better half, if you will. And, yeah, overall, it's a beautiful ending because everyone basically is with somebody. Kip is with LaFonda. Grandma is with Tina, Rico with Tammy, Pedro with his family, and Napoleon's with Deb. So everyone sort of is back where they belong or with the person that they were lacking earlier in the film. They've all sort of reached that growth that they needed to have. Yeah, and I think that's a good way to put it, the growth that they had. Because it obviously, it does lead with them being with somebody, but it's also the growth in there that matters. So Kip, you know, going from a basement dweller to this adult where he's willing to move out of grandma's house and start a new life. That's crazy. Uncle Rico, the fact that he's willing to finally just abandon his past and just accept the fact that, Hey, here's this girl who wants me for me, especially without his throwing arm, the arm that's going to get him into the pros. Obviously that was a delusion, but she's going to love him no matter what, even without him being this pro quarterback, she loves him for him. So he's maybe getting over his delusions in his past and he's willing to finally grow up and face his present. You know, Napoleon with Deb, 
getting over people's impressions of him and just being able to do that dance and come out with confidence, just his story is now intertwined with Deb, who is also equally as shy in terms of expressing emotions and opinions. Now they're finally, I think, understanding that they're going to be together and they're fine coming out and admitting it. You have Pedro himself who got his acceptance in the school. He's now controlling the school. He's the leader. He's emerged from a spot where he's embarrassed by a hood because he's sweating from nerves to now he's the president. If there was, you know, if you see some of this stuff as bigotry towards his Mexican heritage, he's overcome that. He's overcome Summer Wheatley. And even the relationship between Napoleon and Kip, that smile from Napoleon, he now sees Kip in a positive light. They've been fighting the whole movie, teasing each other the whole movie. And yet in that moment, it's just a genuine moment between brothers of like, hey, I'm happy you finally moved on and you're happy. And it made Napoleon happy. And so it seems like even as brothers, they've connected. So it all just really happy ending all around. Everyone really emerged and became their best selves and ended up with the appropriate people. So kind of going one step further, like Napoleon, the characters conquered their lesser selves and grew into something. And like dynamite, they blew up their prior facades into esteemed newness. That's how I'd conclude this. Now, whether or not that is real or not, it, it works and it sounds good. And I'm an English major, so I'm going to go with that. That that was how I would sum up the ending here. Explosive. That was fantastic. The only thing that could even top that or even come close is the wedding scene at the end. So believe it or not, uh, if you go the whole way through the credits to the end, we have a final scene. Basically, it tells us that two months later, we are having this wedding. It is the wedding of Kip and LaFonda. At the wedding, we're in a field, and everybody's there, even Tina. Tina's hanging out with everyone, and they have seats set out. Kip and LaFonda are up in the front getting married here. We do hear LaFonda's full name, which is LaFonda Lucas, and we also have Kipland Roland Dynamite. So they're doing this whole ceremony, Kip actually goes inside of LaFonda's veil, like underneath of it and up inside of it to kiss her, which is pretty great. And then he does a rap at the end. Why do you love me? Why do you need me? Always and forever. We met in a chat room. Now our love can fully bloom. Where he talks about how much he loves LaFonda, although he loves technology. He loves her more, but he still loves technology. And so that's pretty much the whole theme of his rap. But as he's performing it, Napoleon, who has been absent from the ceremony, suddenly rides up on a wild stallion. He comes across the field. He's wearing this like billowy, like white shirt with laces in the front. Like he's on like a romance novel cover and he's riding a horse and he comes toward them across the field. And, and he just says, I just got done taming a wild honeymoon stallion for you guys. So this is his gift to the two of them. Kip does the garter toss, and he throws it to Uncle Rico. Rico catches it. Napoleon says, lucky. And then that's the end of the film. So this ties in with, on Napoleon's shirt, how he had the stallions on his shirt earlier. And so I guess another one of his skills is taming wild stallions. 
That's a huge scene to put at the end credits. I missed it, so I'm glad you watched it. Yeah. <laughs> I never bothered to check the end credits. Uh, as, as our listeners might know, I tend not to be as thorough as Matt. That especially shined in our, our video game playthroughs, but that's a pretty big scene. I'm glad they tied it's in the horses. Yeah, I'm, I'm, usually they'll do a little bit of a blip, like kind of a, like a little humor. This is a huge scene to just throw it at the end here. Yeah, so there it is. Apparently they filmed that scene like after the initial production. It was a year later. They say in the documentary, there's a little documentary that goes with it called The Wedding of the Century. They say that it was like a year reunion for the cast to come and film that scene. During the end credits, you know, the last real thing I have to add is that Jared Hess said when they were filming this movie, we never knew if it would see the light of day. I'm really glad that it did because it, for me, is is just a, it's like a part of myself. Like, I quote it constantly. My whole sense of humor, I think, is different because of this movie. So, I mean, I don't know. And then The Wedding of the Century at the end there, it just ties a nice bow on everything which they already did at the end of the film, but this gives it even more of a clear ending in a good way uh, where it's like you're not left wondering what's going on. So I think that was really great. And one other thing I must add, though, is a lot of people don't know about this, but about 10 years after this, it was either 2013 or 14, there was a short-lived Napoleon Dynamite cartoon that has six episodes in it. And it has the original cast voicing the characters. So if you want more Napoleon Dynamite, it's actually really great for what it, you know, whatever reason it didn't catch on. But if you like this movie, you will like the cartoon. So highly recommended. The writers are probably just upset they didn't tie in the, the horses because he constantly is drawing horses and whatnot and the shirts and whatnot. They're like, ah, this is really bothering us. We got to tie it in. We've tied everything else together. And even you mentioning Tina, I forgot Tina actually got fed by the grandma at the end. So everything comes full circle. All right, guys. Well, we hope you enjoyed our journey through the most epic comedy of all time. And and for me, this was a great trip down memory lane. Uh, We both really enjoyed it. And we're just looking forward to catching you next time when we return to the 1990s. Follow us on Patreon and Instagram at the Nostalgic Millennial Podcast. Our Patreon offers access to special posts, a Discord server, and bi-weekly exclusive episodes. Spend time with us there until our next new episode when we return to the 1990s.